I could not believe what I was seeing. I could have filled the back of his head with 556, which is an absolute joke. Well, it's not an ape, because if the Sasquatch was an ape, we would already have one. What are these elusive hominids that stalk the wilderness? Your host, two-time witness and field researcher for more than 40 years, William Jevning. Welcome to the mystery. Welcome to Creek Devil. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Creek Devil. We had Sarah on last week's show, and that was, geez, Tom, what, that episode 128, correct? Episode 128, part I, I one, lose, yes. I lose track of them right after we do them sometimes. Uh, so anyway, we were talking with Sarah after we stopped recording and found out that she had a lot more things to talk about. So we invited her back, and we're doing part two. So, Tom, would you like to take it away? Yes, absolutely. Sarah, thanks again for joining us. And, you know, honestly, it really feels like you're part of the Creek Devil family, and hopefully we're becoming part of the uh, Australian Yowie research family as well. Uh, this oh, is just... It's I was going really, to say hi. No, it's nice, been nice to be here. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And one of the questions that this is where I want to start today's show off is you had talked about Yes, uh, on our last episode, a mother had picked up a little boy and they were running out of the area and he was looking behind mom, if I understand correctly. And he not only heard the creature, but he saw it. And, and here's why it's interesting. That's one of the very, very, very few cases where people have actually not only heard the creature, but seen it. And so you can positively connect the sound to the creature. Um just for our listeners, if you could kind of rehash, uh, just kind of refresh us a little bit on that story. We'll start off from there. And then you've got a lot of other things to talk about. So it's really going to be an open, kind of an open mic, open forum, and anything you want to talk about. Okay. Well, that particular that particular case occurred at Hickey's Falls, which is in at the southern point of uh, an area uh, of national park called the Pilliga, and it's about three thousand square kilometres of scrub bushland, um, and lots of strange things happen there. It's we've got several reports from uh, several Yowie reports from along that stretch of road there's a there's a highway that runs up through the middle of the Pilliga called the Newell Highway and we have multiple sightings along that road I've interviewed myself several people who have seen Yowies uh, a lot in that in that stretch of land it's kind of strange lots of people report that their the electronics in their car in their cars kind of malfunction when they're going through that along that road uh, lots of people have reported um, there's lots of trucks that go through there, lots of truck drivers, and they all tell each other, don't stop in the Pilliga, really dangerous, strange things happen. Um, you get, <laughs> you, you, your truck gets smashed, you, 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 you see these creatures. So it's, there's a lot of truck drivers all around Australia who know not to stop along that Newell Highway. 
Anyway, so this this woman's brought taken her kids for a swim. It's the middle of summer, a very hot day, and uh, the kids have run ahead, jumped into the water, into a, a, a water hole. It's a it's a waterfall, big high rock walls in a, in the shape of an amphitheater. Uh, so sort of semicircular, beautiful spot, um, and they're not there very long. Uh, the the mum actually hears what I f- actually forgot about mentioning last time, but the mother actually heard a little child crying or in sort of in distress uh, when they first got there, and she she actually said her first instinct was there's something wrong here, like a. Her, her her intuition was telling her something's not right. She hears this child crying and she thought, oh, God, there may be some baby, some child lost in the woods. And she was thinking, I might have to go and look, look and see um, just in case there's a child in trouble. And uh, it was then when um, her, her, her two, her two children and one of her daughter's friends hear this massive, raw bellow that just seemed to go on forever and echo all around this 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 rock amphitheater where the waterfall is and they all three the all all four of them were panic stricken run back to the car the mother picks up her seven-year-old child and throws him over her shoulder and runs now sometime later he he talks to his mum about I think there was some Bigfoot show on television and he's, he was watching that and he turned to his mum and said, that's what I saw that day, that day at Hickey's Falls when you threw me over your shoulder and I look, I could look back. A creature like that was, it was squatting initially near a rock at the top of the falls. It then stepped with its mouth open, it then stands up still with its mouth open and that bellow and that roar is still echoing around uh, the, 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 the waterfall. And uh, he said when it stood up and he was pointing, he pointed out to where, I mean, so it, it's, it would have been nine to ten foot at least tall, this creature. Um, so that's what he remembered and he, he identified it as looking looking like, the Bigfoot that he saw on on a television show. So absolutely terrifying account and they all panicked, ran for the car. They could then see this massive creature coming down the path towards them, snapping trees like matchsticks, pushing its way through because it was it was too wide to fit down the little path. So it was just smashing trees as it came, stomped down towards them so they bolt jump in the car uh speed out and just as she's speeding and swerving out of this car park she was stopped by a police officer who thought who's this crazy lady driving really erratically and she she just in panic said there's something down there there is something down go don't go down there don't go down there and and sped off um a little bit later she's pulled up at the side of the road to gather herself and get the three kids in their seatbelts. And um, and then they notice this, the police car with the same police officer in it, hoons up behind them, whizzes past, and the kids said to mum, oh, did you see his face? And he was white, terrified looking. And apparently she made inquiries about him and he left the police force not long after. Uh, not sure what happened to him. 
she also mentioned this horrific stench, horrible smell that filled the car and made her want to vomit and she was actually struggling to not vomit and drive. Um, so, yeah, that's that. That's the Hickey's Falls account. It's, it's one of the most terrifying and I can imagine if you're if you've got three young children with you as a, and a as a as a mother you would be yeah absolutely terrified well we were keeping track of all the things that Sarah just talked about that echo that is everything that we've heard so many times before i lost count um yeah historically you can go back in john green's books and and you can find every one of those elements Yeah, absolutely. So that's that's a, a really interesting story. Just like Will said, all those different elements are all repeating patterns that we've seen before. And again, this is, you know, we get so many of our audience members that they come to us, they want to know the truth. They re, you know, not many people get the, the opportunity to go out and, you know, research and investigate these things. And so... We're kind of an outlet for that, and this is an opportunity for people to see not only here in North America, but that exact same repeating pattern in Australia. And very, very, very interesting. Yeah, isn't it fascinating that the we can have such uh, so, such similar reports on on opposite sides of the planet, and they're they're. They're so similar. So many of the, the characteristics of the sightings that are reported are so similar. Well, she started off with hearing a baby crying in the woods. Yes. And how many times, Will, have we heard that? I mean, Lee, who we know, he went into the woods here in Oregon. He heard that. He kept going in, kept going in. And he finally connected the dots and went, hey, wait a second. I'm being drawn into something here. Yeah. And left. Well, one of the other things we thought was perhaps there was a baby, a juvenile Yowie there, and maybe the arrival of the, the humans uh, upset Big Daddy or Big Mama and um, and they were protecting their, their child, their little one, perhaps. Oh, that's interesting. I hadn't thought of that. So maybe Could the crying was actually a, a, a Yowie baby rather than a human baby or or a, a, an adult Yowie imitating a baby. I could have actually been a real baby baby Bigfoot. Yeah, exactly. Well, and the other thing is, is, you know, and I don't think you mentioned it on the previous episode, was the powerful stench because it is, I've smelled it, and it is very, very, it's very oppressive. And Will has explained that this is only comes from agitation. It's, it's, uh, I think chimps is, Will, is it chimps or gorillas that have a scent gland that exude that smell? I, I think it's gorillas. I'd have to check, but I think it's gorillas. Yeah, silverback gorillas. And I think it's only from, I mean, I'm, I'm not no expert in this area, but it, uh, I think it's just the male silverbacks that, that do that. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah, so maybe it's the, something that develops when you're the alpha male of the group. I, I don't know. 
Um, interestingly, though, what we, another interesting point about that story, when they arrived at the car park, um, which is just off this main highway, and um, so like, it's like a truck stop rest and you, you can park and then walk to this little waterhole with the waterfall, um, she noticed, the mother noticed, along with her sense of unease, that there was a car there that had all four doors flung open and left there, like there was nobody there. And there was no one at the truck stop and there was no one at the waterfall. There's not really anywhere else somebody would have parked there to go anywhere. Uh, so it was it was very odd that there's this car that looks like all four of the doors of somebody's jumped out and not even bothered to close the door. Um, it was it was kind of strange too. And no, but we, I haven't investigated or asked the police who that belonged to, but uh, it was it was strange. And coincidentally, her parents actually happened to pass through that truck stop that morning separately and they had noticed they had noticed that same car there but what they also noticed was what she noticed when she arrived was that there, it was silent there were no bird noises that the the vibe of the place was really really uneasy so much so that they didn't stay for a swim they, they kind of looked at this car noticed that everything was silent everything felt very, very uneasy so they decided, no, oh, let's get out of here. You know, that's another one of those repeating patterns, mm-hmm. the elements. I, I've experienced that, and we've got a friend of our show, a uh, retired police officer named Gerald, who's experienced that. And he said, Tom, the best way I can describe that is being in a graveyard at midnight. It's exactly what it is. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> it, it, it hits the nail on the head. It really does, right? Yeah. Yeah, no thanks. <laughs> it's because right, it, and it's it's more than just the lack of sound. It's there's something tangible about it. Yeah, there's some something that primitive uh, intuition that all humans have is was saying that there's something wrong here. Something's not right. Yeah, mine's not very well tuned because I usually walk into these areas and ignore it. But um, <laughs> it's 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 a premonition of this area is not right. There's something mm. not right going on. Yeah, and whether that's a, as a result of infrasound that's being directed towards you, or simply just the presence of these beings in the area causes all the other forest animals, insects to stop I, you know what what it is I, i'm not sure i'm not 100 percent sure everything shuts up they're like oh it's better to just not be discovered by these things yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which is when you consider it quite incredible that the whole the whole forest shuts down <laughs> uh, insects birds little animals everything is quiet right I can understand animals, but insects. I know that's that's what I find really weird. What what are they sensing? Yeah, they're bugs. What do they yeah. know? Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Maybe we'll have an entomologist call us up and say, "Well, they're actually smarter than you think." Who knows? Oh, that'd be good. Actually, that'd be really interesting. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so what else do we have? You have a ton of stuff. All right, so because you mentioned an interest in in the little boy saying one of these creatures actually vocalising, which he did. Um, I, another, another witness I interviewed last year, he had a, a sighting, a, a Yowie sighting, 
uh, at a place called Bellbird Grove, which is about 17, 20 kilometres southwest of Brisbane, which is the capital city of Queensland uh, in the northeast of the country. Not far from a, actually a major city, but there's, there's quite a lot of bushland around this area and it connects to other national parks. Now, this, and this, this happened just last year in 2020. Uh, he, this guy's a, a, an athlete. He's a scientist and an athlete and walks kilometres and runs kilometres every day. So he would often go to this, this, this park area for, to, to run and walk. Because it's, um, we were, it was a COVID lockdown at the time, there was no one around. Um, I think he'd snuck out just because he was desperate for a walk. And he, he came across, he, he hears this sort of rock clacking noise in the distance and goes off track, decides to investigate. Now, because of the direction he came up the, the bed of this creek that was mostly dry but with little, little pools of water in it, he suddenly comes across uh, a creature that's about five foot tall, hairy, yowie looking, um, clocking, clacking, rat, clacking rocks in this creek bed, almost like it was playing, having fun, like a little kid mucking around in the water, in the, in the ankle deep water. Uh, so this creature spots him, sort of turns its, and then turns its head to the bank of the creek and purses its lips as though to make a little sound. Uh, he couldn't hear anything where he was, but it looked like it was making a, a sound. So it's turned its head to this bank, and where it turns its head to, this huge uh, six, seven-foot creature comes stomping down the creek bed, obviously been summoned by little by Junior, and looks at, this witness and opens its mouth and roars at him. He was terrified. He didn't know anything about Yowies beforehand. Very skeptical man. He turned and ran for his life. And he said, I, I think because he's a sprinter, he said, I think I did my personal best getting out of there. Uh, absolutely terrified. And in fact, so frightened. And he couldn't tell his family. He, he didn't feel like he could, he could tell his his wife or children that they would ridicule him and think he was crazy. He ended up going to a doctor, obviously didn't tell the doctor exactly what had happened, but said that he was having trouble sleeping and um, really anxious, so he was, he was given some anti-anxiety medication. Um, and he's, he's since been back. Uh, we did it. Australian Now We Research created a video out of that chat that I had with him, but uh, a month or two later, they went back with Dean Harrison and the team uh, to. So we've got another video of of that area, and even going back to the area with three other men, he was he still said, "I'm not staying here after dark, and I'm really anxious." And you could tell he was really anxious, even being there with three other blokes. Um, so yeah, quite an incredible story. It's it's way beyond incredible, and what I find, this is just amazing. The little one pursed its lips, summoning, making an ultrasound, presumably. Yep. An inaudible sound, and it summoned the big creature. Exactly. 
It's very interesting. Yeah, and and where the big so the boys have gone back to exactly that spot. They were able to identify exactly where that was, and they worked out that if the what we think is mum or dad, if they're, if they're sitting on the bank, they'd actually position themselves to be able to see the the walking track. But so it was actually it, it seemed to have purposely sat itself there to be able to see a walking track in both directions, while little Junior was ha- having a play in the creek. Um, but because this witness had come off the path and was coming up the creek bed, he wouldn't have been seen, which is what happened, wasn't seen until the last minute. And then all of a sudden he's there and little Junior's, little Junior's going, oh, there's a, there's a stranger, Mum, Dad. <laughs> and, uh, and then Mum, Dad came to the rescue. Right. And this guy just, you know, it's, it's really too bad. Um, that there's not more of a recognition that these creatures exist. I'm, I'm, you know, there's kind of a part of me, a big part of me, that hopes that that's going to change, and you know, maybe even these discussions that we're having today will sort of help break some ground on this topic. Because uh, I think it's as much as it gets, um, you know, kind of a silly treatment here in the U.S. I think there's more of a uh, a much broader acceptance, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, not only by common people, but also quietly within professional um, community as well, you know, different types of professions. So it'd be great if down the road, you know, some family therapist or something could, you know, see clear, I guess, to sort of accept this. You know, so you could go in there and just kind of unburden yourself. Look, this is what I saw. You know, it's not my fault. Don't blame me. But they were there. I saw them. This is what I experienced. We actually have two two psychologists who have had their own sightings, so have offered if, if there is anyone that we speak to who's acutely distressed and needs counselling, that they're more than happy to talk to them over the phone because they've actually had their own experiences. Oh yeah, yeah. That's uh, that is absolutely golden. Yeah, very interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's so difficult. Uh, it's really challenging for people who who are struggling with what what happened, with what they saw, especially if they can't unburden themselves to their family. Um, it's it's a it's a really for some people it's it's so life-changing, so paradigm-changing that they are, are so shaken. It's really, it's hard if you don't get, if you don't, if you can't tell someone about it, if you can't get that off your chest, if you can't process it with someone else. Yeah, and I think that's very important to um, to be able to process it because otherwise you're just carrying this, this weight, kind of heavy burden, and you're isolated. Where do, where do you turn to? How can you share it with somebody? Yeah, and then you, you second-guess yourself and you think, well, maybe I am crazy. Maybe I, I was having a psychotic episode and that was all in my imagination. Uh, I, I, a lot of people have doubted their own sanity, I think. Yes, yeah. All right, so what, uh, what other kind of um, stories and encounters? you got a lot of interesting stuff to share with us. Yeah, so... 
The next one I thought I'd tell you about happened in down in my state in Victoria, which is in the southeast of Australia. And this happened in the Barmer State Forest, which is on the Murray River. Now, the Murray is a, a huge river, like perhaps you could just so it was similar to the Mississippi or something like that. It's one of the, in fact, they're one of the biggest, if not the biggest, longest river in Australia. And um, this guy was, and this happened about the, in 2007. He was camping by himself. He, he was one of those guys who liked to get away just by himself and, in fact, would ride a, a bicycle with his tent and everything on it through forest. So he didn't even have a car. Uh, camping by himself in a tent and was asleep but some, at some point woke up and heard uh, a growl right near his tent and he had no idea what it was and then he started seeing something that looked like a finger pushing the outside of the tent, like testing it to see what was in it or just something was poking the tent and he said it it looked like a finger he started getting absolutely terrified because he heard this this deep horrific growl that was just a, a really scary monster growl as far as he was concerned and all of a sudden and so he sort of slunk down under his blanket sleeping bag and covered his head with it like a little kid as probably most of us would do and all of a sudden the, the tent collapses in on him and the, the, the being has knelt down on the tent and over him and is basically straddling him but not, not with its entire weight. So it's, and, and it's feeling through the tent, feeling and through the blanket that he had covering his face, feel, feeling his face. And he said that the hands were, were as big as basketballs and the fingers were like sausage rolls, which here in Australia that's a, a sausage in pastry. So big, fat, chunky fingers were feeling the outline of his face and his body and his shoulders and his legs. <laughs> and he was, I mean, I, I was just imagining myself going, I would be, def I would definitely need definitely need clean underpants after that one for sure but you'd be absolutely terrified so he's holding his breath until and didn't want to breathe was just playing dead and then this creature kind of gets up off the tent and the tent pops back up and then it just moves away for a little bit but st stays there because he could still hear it for about half an hour just watching the tent uh, and so can you imagine lying in a tent by yourself in the middle of a forest, no one around, you haven't got a car even to escape in, and a huge creature jumps on you and is feeling your the outline of your face through the tent. Oh, Sarah, i got to share something with you. <laughs> now, Go on, tell now, me. Now, our listeners have heard this before, and it's in one of my books, but when we were teenagers and really just beginning to get involved in all this. Um, right after I met John Green and Renee Hinden, you know, we decided to start looking in our respective areas for the signs of these creatures. And one of the guys said that um, th there was a family by the name of Clark 
uh, out in this kind of a very rural area, and they had a farm, and they'd been hearing some really weird screams out there for the past week or so. So we got permission to go out on their property, which was fairly extensive. And uh, so we hiked back in there, and, and not being the best prepared, we didn't have much in the way of flashlights or anything, but, you know, we packed a tent and some food, and off we went. And I, I don't know what time it was. It was fairly late that night, probably around 10, 11 o'clock. And uh, we'd been hearing screams around us. They would start, and it was just it was just a whole series of weird events that were going on. We were <laughs> paying attention to this. So one of the guys decided, there were four of us now, that one of the guys decided he wanted to go to sleep. He was getting tired. So I theorized that we probably should work in pairs. So two of us would be up while the other two would sleep and, and rotate. And And the guy that was his partner didn't want to go to sleep, so I said, all right, look just go to sleep we'll we'll figure this out so the other three of us were sitting around the fire in front of the tent quietly talking and after maybe 20 minutes we hear this rustling going on inside the tent and we're thinking what the heck's going on of course you know teenagers were making fun of what he might be doing in there so um after a few moments of this he come rushing out and he was kind of a big guy and he and he was really ticked off and he says it's not very damn funny you guys messing with me now the tent was one of these really old cabin tents uh heavy duty canvas probably made in the 60s and it didn't have a floor on it six feet high no floor so i said look that that's a that's a great idea none of us thought of it you know but so none of us did it right so i said explain to us what it was that happened i said are you sure you didn't fall asleep he said, no, I just, I got in there and I, I was just laying there listening to you guys talk. He said, then suddenly I thought one of you guys were reaching under the edge of the tent to get something out of the pack so you wouldn't disturb me by coming through the door. And, and then grabbed me. And I said, what do you mean grabbed you? And he was laying on his stomach and he said it, it grabbed his lower back. Now he was a big guy. And, and I said, okay, show me on your lower back. And above the belt line, and we were teasing him about it, grabbing him lower. But <laughs> um, I said, "Okay, so from the base of the base of the palm, show me from the base of the palm. You felt that, right?" And he says, "Yes." Okay, so show me from there to the where its fingertips ended. Where did that? Where did those two points come come on your back? And it would have been close to two feet long. Wow. And I said, now, wait a minute. Now, if this really happened, there has to be some kind of proof of this. So I said, okay, let's get the one flashlight we have and hope the batteries are working. And sure enough, we found 18-inch footprints leading back into the, the forest behind the tent. And, and what really got me was I was kneeling down at the corner of the tent. The other two guys were sitting in front of the door. And where this creature had knelt down there was a big bowl like depression and it was right behind where i was kneeling and i didn't hear a thing right <laughs> <laughs> oh my god that is so scary <laughs> it was it was a proverbial underwear changing moment let me tell you <laughs> absolutely <laughs> absolutely <laughs> oh dear yeah and uh, of course i mean this poor fella uh didn't sleep for the rest of the night and and uh, just was waiting until daybreak so he could pack up and 
get the hell out of there. You know, it, we we call it the Clark Clark Ranch incident, but you know, we privately we tease him about being groped. <laughs> <laughs> we knew we knew the real there reason a, they were there. <laughs> some nice lady Bigfoot. <laughs> but it, got the hots it was for such you. a similar. That's such a similar incident to the one you just related to us. Yeah, yeah, isn't it? I I don't know how though he kept his cool. Uh, uh, I mean, I I've tried I've tried to picture the situation and what I would do, and maybe in that fight, flight, freeze, you're frozen. Um, I guess you're just hoping I, it goes away. <laughs> yeah. And he, he was like, I, I held my breath and he was he was saying, I, I wasn't sure for how much longer I would be able to hold my breath. Um, and then it fight, luckily it got off it got off him before before he had to take in a breath, but he was holding his breath for a long oh, time. Our, our response was um, to build the fire even bigger. <laughs> yes. One of those you could see by satellite, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yes <laughs> absolutely they're the best kind <laughs> yeah for sure but there was another um on that same river uh which is that so the murray river uh and it's it, it's actually the border of new south wales and victoria for some of the river and very wide very fast flowing uh strong massive river and uh a little bit further down river from where that guy had his enc- encounter, um, this other man was was camping on the on the banks of the river at a place called Dufty's Beach on one of the, the sandy river banks, and he was in his tent and he heard splashing through the water along coming down the, the edge of the bank as though something was walking on, on the bank of the river, but splashing through the water. And he said it was like very heavy bipedal footsteps um and he he got out of his he got out of his tent he didn't see anything except for two uh two red glowing eyes that were about eight foot tall uh it was very dark um and then the creature ran for the river when he realized that this guy was was up out of his tent. The creature runs for the river, dives in, and swims directly across the river. This is against the current. Like any human being would have been swept down the river. He puts his his spotlight onto the creature in the water, so he caught the back of its head, big hairy, uh, you know, dark brown back of the head. But it, it managed to swim straight across the river and climb up the bank from there, which is unheard of. It, there's no way a human being could do that. Way too strong, the river. Yeah, that's interesting also because we get reports of that. Actually, Will does. Uh, we have a river here in, in Oregon, between Oregon and Washington. It's the... Uh, I think it's the second largest river in the U.S., the Columbia River, and they routinely, there's a certain section where people see these things swimming across the river, and that is no small river. Yeah, and you can imagine that the, the strength required to swim across a, a wide, fast-flowing river is quite immense. Yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. So the other one I thought I'd, I'd tell you about was 
the Macquarie Pass report, which is the one I mentioned last week uh, where the, the witness ends up shooting one. So this is in, in, this is in New South Wales. And they live out on a farm. The people, these people live out on a farm out in the middle of nowhere. It's quite remote. Um, and in autumn, every year, around the same time every year, they they sort of they live in near a valley and they get screams and howls every year at the same time and it sounds like there's a group or a family group of them moving through the area every year in autumn. Um, so they well they they decided to to engage them a little bit and and chase after them when they heard them coming to the house and they heard the screams coming from quite close and they'd hear running around and crashing in the forest and um the the two the two the the witness i spoke to uh he and his brother-in-law would would chase after them sometimes through the bush with with torches and just to see what they were um they did spot on a number of occasions uh, sets of eyes that were a pale yellow, which is unusual, um, but this is at night time, but pale yellow shine and eight to nine foot off the ground. The, his, the, 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 the witness's sister, who also lives there with, with the brother-in-law, uh, would, would see them as well and hear them. So multiple witnesses hearing them and seeing like creatures and eyes, but no full visual as yet. So one night they've all gone out to dinner. They come back from dinner and uh, the sister and, and, the, and her husband have gone down to their separate house and all of a sudden they hear the sister scream and it, she said, oh, my God, one just tried to grab me. It, was, it came up from behind me and grabbed me and, and then when I screamed it ran off. It touched me on the shoulder. And her, her partner who was right there, he saw it. He saw it reaching out to grab her. When she screamed, he turned around and saw it then turn and run off. So the witness was getting a little bit upset about this and concerned now that he thought that they might be targeting his sister. So he and the brother-in-law go go out looking and he ends up climbing up onto – he's got his rifle out this time. He ends up climbing up onto a, a high fence post, you know, those big farm fence posts. So he's about 10 foot off the ground now with his rifle and hears this heavy footsteps running in his direction, which then stop about 20 metres away. He turns on his torch and he's got one of these creatures right in front of him. The, the creature then turn, looks at him and then turns and runs off. And this guy, because he thinks that their intentions aren't good towards the family, shoots this thing in the shoulder and he saw a little puff of hair and, and heard a thump, as, like he, he said, I definitely hit it for sure. Um, there was no blood on the ground, and, but, you know, it's a little, a small calibre rifle and I don't, he, the way he explained the bullets to me and it, it wasn't going to leave much, much mess. Um, but quite incredible. I mean, he was so shaking after that he fell off the fence post but then thought, oh, my God, I've just shot one. What if they're going to come back at me? So he, I think he skedaddled back up to the farmhouse. Um, but interesting, I, and I, I'm, I wonder if you guys have the same 
patterns where they're coming through the property at the same time every year? Yes, exactly. It happens everywhere here. There's usually one particular time of year in a place. Yeah, right. And it was, I guess it makes sense, moving with the seasons, moving with the food, moving with the weather. Yeah, it's actually it's common, but it's it's common enough. Yeah, we, we actually, yeah. again, it's it's one of those patterns that we see here and, and you guys are getting, getting it in Australia. They also mentioned the, he also mentioned noticing that terrible smell that some people report that sort of smells a little bit like a dead animal, but not usual, not, not quite usual dead animal smell but similar like a, a warm he described it as a warm a warm garbage dead smell so was something musky and hot about it which i thought was interesting i've smelled that yep i know exactly yeah. what he's talking about yeah again but isn't that it's so simple we get similar reports from your country and and my country yeah, absolutely. You know, and that's interesting. I mean, it's it again. It just goes back to it. It reaffirms the uh, you know the creatures exist, the authenticity of them. They're you've got them, we've got them, and behavior is the same. It's it's virtually identical. Yeah, and I, I did also I found it interesting because with regards to the color of the eyes, we, we often get reports of red and orange. Um, but it's 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 slightly more unusual to 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 describe them as whitish yellow, um, but they were blinking like he, <laughs> so he saw them blinking on multiple occasions, and and there was no branches or anything that it, that it wasn't an owl or or anything like that. Um, but that would be he said that he found that very disconcerting because he, he knew that and it was something it was something huge staring at him. And blinking at him. You know, you think about it, um, and you really, there's not a whole lot of what else could it be? Is it it like a nine foot kangaroo? Yeah, it's highly <laughs> unlikely. <laughs> highly unlikely. A group of them, it sounds like. Yeah, he's so that he's had multiple occasions where there have been at least three calling doing that that howl scream sound from different parts of this valley he can he so he's identified at least three at the same time yeah and i've i've mentioned this on the show as well but my wife and i uh, 3 years ago were going to an area camping and we late in the afternoon we heard the screaming it went on for about 7 minutes Sort of low, and it just go up to this real high pitched scream on the other side of this lake. And I was like, and there's only two people in this entire. It's a wilderness lake, so I just kind of found some excuse. Oh, we we, we don't have one of the air mattresses. Got to pack up and go home. <laughs> <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> yeah, we'll come back uh, some other time. Haven't been back since for camping anyway, but. <laughs> <laughs> I don't blame you. What? What? So, what are the eye colours that people report over there? Okay, um, one of the common ones is about the colour of a cigarette lighter. 
I can uh-huh. I can tell you personally what I've seen several times is amber. Right. Kind of a, that light color, not not white, but just sort of a sort of a light amber color. And okay. I, and well, like I, and a traffic I, like a traffic light. Yeah, maybe a little lighter actually, and and I've seen them blinking. You know, the same thing. Yeah, we've even had reports of a diamond-shaped eyes, so that which is really unusual. But we've had a couple of them that the eyes were described by the witnesses as being diamond-shaped as opposed to round. Um, hmm. One of them even had only had one eye, but and it was a diamond-shaped one. So maybe there was some; it had some kind of injury. Um, okay. Yeah, we had. We've also had a report of sideways blinking eyes, which if there's anything that's going to freak you out, that would that would definitely what do you, freak me out. Yeah, what do you mean by sideways blinking eyes? So you know how our our eyelids uh, blink vertically from our top eyelid and our bottom eyelid close together into a horizontal line, I guess. Whereas these eyelids did the opposite, like a reptile. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah. Well, <laughs> can't explain that one, but we, that's right. what was reported to us. So, yeah, maybe that's yeah. something else. Who knows? That's uh, they didn't go up and investigate and check it out, or <laughs> uh, I, I have to. No, <laughs> I don't think they did. I, I, that was reported to Dean, though, so I'd have to check out the details of that case. But I, I just remember him mentioning the, this anomaly. That was unusual, and and two of them. We were talking about eyes, and he mentioned that the, the diamond shaped ones and the the sideways blinking eyes. And I thought, oh, that would be enough to strike terror in your heart, I'd say, because it's so so strange, so yeah. unhuman like. I I don't know if there's anything in nature, really. Yeah, that that has that kind of a design. Ah. Yeah, but then you know we get. As you know, as you guys know, we get reports about dogmen-like creatures, and and that's very strange. So well, my well, mind is open. <laughs> yeah, no, we were just talking about that. There was a um, there's a researcher, John Green, and there's a uh, uh, he was reporting it was basically there's one type of creature, it's the type three, and uh, it's basically I think. For all intents and purposes, it's it's one of these. Only the head is more of a baboon, mm-hmm. and and we suspect strongly that's where the dogman comes from. Yeah. Well, we have reports. I was talking to Dean about this the other day, um, and he reminded me that we have reports from early European settlers describing this creature. There's there's an old you know newspaper, well, the rudimentary newspapers that existed in those days, uh, there are reports of this crazy, this strange creature, but some of the reports describe a baboon-like muzzle. You know, it's interesting. I'm just going to cut in for a second. Here in Oregon, going back in some of the old historic records, I have heard that the, uh, the early pioneers, the European pioneers here would Actually, they called the Sasquatch because they, they didn't have that name back then. They didn't have Bigfoot. <clears throat> they were they were referred to as kangaroos, of all things. Right. 
And I have no idea why, other than they have a very, very different running. You know, they can hop, they can jump. <clears throat> so, there you go. I don't know That's what to make really of it. That's really interesting. Yeah. And, and do you have, uh, do people report in the U.S. Uh, feelings of being paralyzed while in the presence of these creatures? Um, yeah, well, what, what people have reported is, you know, the, what we talked about earlier, you know, being in a graveyard at midnight hey, and hey, Tom, just yeah. actually, I'll give you an example. Uh, and I, I use this example often because it's, it's one of the reports, uh, that really sticks out in my mind from all the years back in 1988, <clears throat> I was, uh, with a couple of guys, we were out looking over this one area and were approached by a couple of guys on dirt bikes. So I asked them if they'd ever seen anything like this. One of the guys said, ah, you know, it's all baloney. The other guy says, well, a friend of mine saw one two weeks ago. So we arranged the following day for me to come back out there and meet with his friend. Uh, the guy's name was Hugh Brown and Hugh had been charged by one of the creatures. It did a mock charge and he said, I don't know what was going on. I must have been in shock because I just didn't move. Uh, and I think from my own experience standing in front of two of them, you know, as a teenager, um, it's just, it's such an overwhelming shock to your system because number one, you're asking yourself, what the hell is this? <laughs> you know, I, for myself, I, I hunted, you know, elk and deer and bear and fished and was in the outdoors all the time and I thought I knew everything that was out there and when you're standing in front of something like that that nobody's ever mentioned before and here's this thing in the flesh um your body just kind of goes into freeze mode it's just it's not I, I don't know if it's fear it's more of a kind of a short circuiting of your your thought process mm. I, I think until your body until your mind sort of says, okay, I need to do something. In, in my case, I shot in the air with the twenty-two that I had. So uh, that didn't help. It brought another one around. So then I took off running like my dog did. So um, <laughs> at that point, you know, reason kicked in. But I think it's more of a, it's just sort of that. It's not really a paralysis. It's uh, it's it's more your own mind doing. You're trying to grapple with a situation that's totally out of its frame of reference. Yeah. Yeah, well, it actually happened to Dean in one of his very frightening encounters uh, in Ormo. He he had just realised something was screaming, growling, roaring at him from only a couple of metres away but in, in behind some trees, bushes. Uh, but he real, he felt, and he felt like he was, he was in, going to die, but he couldn't actually move. He couldn't run. He said, I... I, I stood there for God knows how long, but I was trying to get myself to turn around and run away and I couldn't move. He said, I ended up having to like turn, turn my, my head, my, I managed to turn my head a bit and then I managed to turn my shoulder a bit and then I managed to kind of force myself to take a step. And he said, it was when I, when I finally managed to take a step, then I could move and I sprinted. But it, it was this feeling of, absolute paralysis uh, and, and a woman who I interviewed I think I told you about it last week but um, at Mount Hotham which is in my state of Victoria as well up in the 
high country where it was lots of snow and um, pretty rugged up there. And that was the one where she saw the, the, the yaoi with the long, blonde, flowing hair. Well, a, a, another night where she, she was walking with her husband at night um, in the dark across that mountain and uh, they heard this creature roar, bellow at them from only a few metres away in the tree line as well. And she reported the same thing. She said, I could not move. I knew I, I didn't know what was going on, but I knew we were in danger. I was frightened, but I could not move a muscle. Um, I, can, I can only imagine <laughs> that would be terrifying. Okay, so here's, here's a couple of things. Uh, we have a guy that we've interviewed in the past, and he had a, a situation where uh, this is Lee. He lived in uh, northern, he still lives in northern California, but there was a situation where he f- felt the windows in his house or the room that he was in were vibrating. And he looked out and there's this doe that used to come in the backyard all the time. And there's the doe in the backyard. And as he described it, he said it's kind of doing the funkadelic, you know, just sort of paralyzed, trying to move. Somebody slammed a car door. It stopped, the vibrating stopped, and the deer kind of shook itself off, took off running. So there's something going on there, again, kind of that repeating pattern. Is, um, that, but, is that infrasound, perhaps? Yeah, that, I think that's a good explanation. I mean, we don't know for sure. Well, it's, and it, and our, our forensic anthropologist, John, he talks. He talked about myself about that once. We He says, you know, we know so little about infrasound in the animal kingdom. It's very possible they could do that. Yeah, and in another personal experience of mine last year, I was out, two other guys, we encountered one of these things, and it was actually a small one, it's about six and a half feet tall, so, and the hair was black, so it was a, it was a juvenile, but the moment we found it, and you know, it's kind of a long story, but anyway, at, at one point, as we're trying to get away, and we're leaving the area, it just hit me like a ton of bricks, instantly. Just like you flipped a light switch, I felt like I had the worst case of the flu ever. I was nauseous. I was, you know, sick to my stomach, um, kind of disoriented and not really thinking clearly. No effects of paralysis, nothing like that, but just that instant. And once I got away from this thing, um, it went away. So, don't know. Yeah. Well, and this this other case that was reported to us uh, from Pemberton in Western Australia. This guy was he was actually living out in the bush for a while, um, didn't have a tent. He'd sort of built a bit of a, a humpy, like a, a shack using, you know, branches and things like that. Uh, and it was at night time and he had his dog with him and he, he had been asleep but kind of woke up in the middle of the night and could see there were, a few little bush rats, which are like little rodents, uh, Australian na- native rodents. And he heard some very heavy footsteps coming towards him. He then re- started feeling frightened, but then realised he couldn't move and managed to sort of eyeball his dog who was lying down by his side and he realised his dog's looking up at him and his dog can't move either and he, he he's just able to move his eyeballs so he looks and he could see the little bush rats who were 
eating something and the little bush rat had stopped mid bite of eating something so and it's it, it was there for um a couple of minutes this thing walked towards them he could hear it it stopped and at the same time he's realizing we're all paralyzed and it stopped there for a couple of minutes and then walked off and then all of a sudden they could move again so that was really can you imagine looking around and seeing a little rat like half half stopped mid-bite and realizing that you're paralyzed your dog's paralyzed like oh my god yeah right because what that's telling you is it's not just me this is yeah. affecting all the mammals it's affecting the the yeah. rat the dog myself um and i've heard and again it's like like what will said it's kind of a a new understudied topic in the wild kingdom but i've heard that tigers when they roar like you know the bengal tigers they project an infrasound and it stuns the prey just long yep. enough for them to you know gives them an advantage so um and somebody tested that you know obviously in a zoo you know not not in front of a you know tiger where it could get to them and they said they they clearly felt you know the the effects of like infrasound yeah exactly exactly so imagine <laughs> i can imagine if if that happens to you and you're aware, you're aware of infrasound you, you could suddenly be thinking oh my god i'm somewhat <laughs> it's trying to incapacitate me so it can come and eat me right <laughs> not a nice yeah. not a nice feeling whatsoever terrifying feeling and this is you know, you think about it, I mean, this is a creature that has the lung capacity. I think um, I think one of the whale species, you know, the, the blue whale um, may have, one of the whale species also has that ability. Of course, they can actually kill you with, with their sound, but they can stun their prey uh, with infrasound. So, yeah, it's, it's something that hopefully somebody will pick up and, you know, do their dissertation on it. Yeah, <laughs> that'd be great. <laughs> but again, it it's it's it seems to be limited to strictly very large animals. So, tigers, whales, this creature. Yeah. Well, Sarah, what else do you have for us? What what other interesting topics or stories? Uh, so I actually wanted to, I wanted to ask you, because you're having some terrible um, wildfires over there at the moment, I believe, aren't you? Or yeah, we I, we are right now. Yeah. Oregon is having the largest one in the nation. Yeah. So I, because this subject has come up a few times over here too. So I wonder what what happens to to these creatures when there are massive fires. We had, like, two years ago, we had massive... I remember that. ...horrific fires. I was actually caught right in the middle of one of those bushfires that on, oh, on wow. New Year's Eve. Yeah, it was very frightening. Uh, we, we thought we were going to die at one point, so it was pretty scary. Uh, but I, I, there was a lot of talk about, I wonder what happens to when you get vast areas of what we would say is, yeah, we habitat, where there are there've been you know many reports 
I wonder what happens to them. Do they... Uh, I'm surprised we don't actually have more sightings of them trying to escape Well, you know, Tom and I talked about this not too long ago, actually, in one of the shows. Um, there, We have reports, you know, of, of people seeing them around fires, but, uh, in fact, I have a couple I'll, I'll bring up, but, you know, they, they've been around fires as long as there have been wildfires, um, and I think they're pretty smart, so they, you know, they know how to react around them. Um, the two stories I'll relate though is one was, um, when I went to the Klamath, uh, Indian reservation in Southern Oregon back in 2003, when I was writing my first book, I was invited there to meet with uh, their head of the cultural committee at the tribal council. And he was telling me about a, a native fire crew that was out, uh, on this particular fire. And they said they, they were spread out, uh, sweeping for hot spots. And here comes this Sasquatch running from the direction where the fire was with its hair smoldering. And apparently it tripped and fell down in the midst of these firefighters and got up and ran off. And they said they cast the handprints and they were on display <clears throat> excuse me, in southern Oregon for many years. And then uh, they disappeared. Nobody knows where they went to. But um, uh, the other one was, um, uh, I, I know a cow fire, actually he's retired uh, Cal Fire Captain now, who um, him and another captain were on a fire a couple of years back, and they were watching or they were talking near a food drop, and they happened to notice one of the creatures sneaking up on the food drop. So I, I don't think they're too awfully frightened of fires. They they know how to neg negotiate around them, you know, from long long history of dealing with them. Uh, and it could be an opportunity too because prey animals you know are running like crazy from the fire and i think they might take advantage of that you know uh disarray to catch an easy meal yeah yeah absolutely uh, i've heard quite a few i've heard reported and i don't know whether there's any truth in this at all but i have been reported stories of when mount st helens blew um that when it was there was a volcanic eruption that huge eruption in, was it in the 80s, I think? <coughs> Excuse me. I've heard reports about people seeing um, burnt Sasquatches well, let me tell in you. that area. <laughs> I have some first-hand... But I don't know... I've had some first-hand knowledge about that. I was I was in the Army okay. at the time, and I was stationed at Fort Lewis. It's, I don't know what it is, it's 100-some-odd miles north of Mount St. Helens. And at the time, we were uh, at the Yakima Firing Center uh, in eastern Washington, so... The morning that the mountain erupted, uh, we were ordered to uh, pack up and get everything on the helicopters. We were heading back to Fort Lewis. And, uh, geez, I, I don't think it could have been more than 10 or 15 minutes after we lifted off. We were heading west. And, uh, you know, there's the Cascade Mountains divide Washington and Oregon. So on the western side, the, the clouds that come off the ocean, they back up against the mountains. And that's why there's so much rain on the western side of those states. And on the eastern side, it's very dry, kind of desert-like. And um, so as we were heading west, I see what looks like clouds in front of us. And one of the pilots, he comes across my headset and he says, Hey, Sarge, you know what that is? And I'm calculating in my mind how many hours it's going to take to get the squad cleaned up, all the gear cleaned up, so I can go home and take a shower. And a lot of times it's, you know, 8, 10 hours or more. Um, so I, I, I intimately or immediately think it's raining on, on the Western side of the mountain. So I'm thinking, Oh, great. 
everything's going to get wet. It's going to take even longer. So I said, my reply was, yeah, misery. <laughs> so he, he chuckled. He knew, what, he knew what I was thinking. He says, no, St. Helens just blew its cork. That's, that's the ash cloud coming toward us. And they rerouted us north uh, around Mount Rainier to avoid the ash cloud. So when you see the pictures of Mount St. Helens in 1980, you know, looking like it's nighttime at noon, we just missed that. So wow. I knew my unit was one of them that did a lot of the rescue work in that area right after the blast. And, uh, and I knew most of the pilots and they knew what my hobby quote unquote was. And, and there was nothing. I mean, for example, one of the guys, a Cobra helicopter pilot come in one day, a friend of mine, and, and he says, Hey, Bill, do you know what this is? And he holds up this vial and it looked like sand in it. And I said, you've been to the beach. What do you got there? <laughs> <laughs> and and he says no 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 he says we we landed on top of uh remember the gentleman harry truman who refused to leave um uh-huh, yeah, yeah. he uh his house was buried under 100 feet of ash and and that was ash from on top of where they landed on top of where his house was um so and i heard i heard lots of horrible stories of things they found up there so but there were no sasquatch bodies um i know there's there's those stories persist. I even know a guy who I think started those rumors, you know, because <laughs> his supposition was, well, because they must have been out there, then the blast must have killed them. There have to be bodies laying around. Well, anything laying around on that side of the mountain would have been buried under a lot of ash. So you weren't just going to go wandering yeah. around out there and find anything. Um, and that, actually, that area actually rebounded very quickly after the blast. So it's very unlikely you would find anything. And, and a lot of the elk and deer, you know, weeks before the mountain exploded, they bugged out of the area. I mean, they knew, they knew there was an impending something bad happening. So a lot of the animal life left. Um, so I, I, you know, as far as I know, and I would have known because I, I was in a key position, uh, somebody would have told me and there was nothing found up there. Yeah. I think the rumours, the, the story that I'd heard was that the army had helped evacuate burnt yowies. Um, but obviously, yeah, as, you, as, you're, as you're saying, it's probably just a told story. It was, and like I said, you know, I, I, was, I was one of the key non-commissioned officers uh, with 5th Air Cavalry at the time, and I, I knew, you know, sergeants and the other, other companies, other troops, and, uh, you know, somebody would have told me if something was seen and, and there was nothing. Yeah. Pure conjecture. Oh good. Well you put that one you put that one to rest then. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, there was there is a side effect to the forest fires though, and that is that it greatly reduced the, these big ones. One of the areas that's not far from where I live is a huge, like a hundred and forty thousand acre fire. So it's gonna reduce the um the, the habitat for, for a while. So it concentrates the prey into smaller areas. Um, it's, you know, I, I was talking to a gentleman a while back, and he was he had actually been stalked by a mountain lion that he presumed had been displaced from one of these fires, and you know he had to, he had no choice; he had to dispatch it with a, you know, he had a sidearm. But so that's one of the side effects, and Will and I have wondered if that might affect the creatures don't know probably you know it's uh, going to constant have a greater concentration of creatures in a somewhat smaller area now 
Yeah, potentially. Well, I, I don't know. I mean, look at some of the areas. I mean, I think people don't realize just how vast the areas are, at least in, in these regions here. Uh, and I'm sure they're also, you know, you get a fire. Um, I fought fire back in 1990 for the Forest Service. And uh, we got called out on right after graduating the fire academy uh, on, a, on a fire that was 86,000 acres. And there were 6,000 of us in the base camp. And that's pretty massive, right? But yeah. when you look at the area where the Patterson film was made, there's 100,000 square miles of forest up there. So, you know, 86,000 is a lot, a lot of acres. But when it's placed in context, you know, uh, these things have a lot of area to move around in. So yeah. I, I don't really think it affects them that badly. No, and I, and I think it's, it's it's very similar here. We've got huge, vast tracts of right. wilderness, right, uh, and mountains and forest. Yeah, they got but I, they got plenty of space. Yeah, <laughs> yes, but I, I was because there was so much fire. Oh, two yeah. years ago, and it was just everywhere. And I, I certainly, I certainly did think on a few occasions. Oh, I hope you're all always safe. <laughs> I hope you've all gotten out of here. There's that you're somewhere safe. Cave systems, maybe. Yeah, it's not not something you want to get caught in. That's for sure. No, no, not at all. All right. Well, listen, I um, I really hope we can have you back on soon for uh, another chat and some updates. I'm sure you're going to get get those as you guys are really active out there. There's yeah. a lot of stuff going on. I've got a, I've got an a, an in, an interview with a witness lined up for this afternoon. I've got one tomorrow. I've got three or four already booked in for next week. So you're busy. Yeah. <laughs> yes. yes. Well, no, that's wow, that, that's good. That is exciting. Yeah. Very much so. It is very good. Yeah, it's very interesting. Um, it's it's sometimes sometimes you 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 start to think oh my god there's so many people coming in how do i how do i keep up with everybody and email them all back and then line up a telephone call and record that and uh document that and transcribe it so it's all there for the database and yes it's a welcome to our world yes (laughs) that's great so do you have a do you have a database that you're like a, a website other than the youtube channel where you're um recording all the reports that you're getting we don't have an external uh, database or knowledge base, but we do keep the information internally. Yeah. And we have discussed, right, Will, the possibility of developing a searchable relational database. Yes, that, that's one of, That'll our, be an one of our plans. Yeah. Yeah, like an interactive map. Right. Someone can just, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We have someone someone put together one of those for Australian Yowie Research, actually, which was very handy. Very handy for me because I'm in a completely different part of the country to where a lot of the most of the reports that we get are in New South Wales and Queensland. So um, a lot of that is area that I don't know all the little towns and all the areas around in all that vast region. So when someone says, "Oh, I've got a report from," this place in queensland i can just go to this map and i can go oh yeah look there were reports there there's a report there there's a report there all the surrounding areas 
Uh, so I'm very grateful to, <laughs> I think his name was Mike, who put that together for us because it makes my life as an interviewer um, much easier. Absolutely. Yeah, it, it really does. And it, um, you know, if you're looking for like trend analysis yeah. for behavior, locations, you know, any any kind of criteria you want, it, it, it's, it's invaluable. Well, listen, Sarah, thank you so much. And again, I hope we can, uh, I hope it'd be great to get Dean and anybody else on the team that would, uh, would just love talking to you guys. Uh, yeah, look, I've, I've spoken to all three of them. I did ask about the the footage from Minnesota that you asked about um, and the, the woman who, who took that footage. Uh, she's not, yeah, she's not interested in doing any interviews or I don't think she's, she, is quite very well at the moment so that's that's a no but um dean i think will uh would be happy to come on the show and gary and buck also said they would uh as well so i'll i've sent i've sent you an email i think with gary's email and bucks and i'll maybe i'll send another one with dean so you've got all three uh, and then you can just contact them when you want to and when you want to have them on absolutely Yes. And you have to come back also. We really enjoy talking to you. <laughs> Lovely. I've really enjoyed talking to you both too. I'm happy to come back. All righty. Well, awesome as always. Everyone, stay tuned for the next segment. All right, welcome back from the break, everyone. We're going to do something just a little bit different. We're trying to, always trying to keep things interesting. We're going to do the Q&A, but we're going to augment it also with some information. So we've been going through some of John Green's material, and there's a lot of really fascinating stuff in there that we hear all the time from our uh, witnesses and, and uh, folks who write in that's been around for a very long time. So behaviors and such uh, are consistent, as we've said, across geography and throughout time and brian you're gonna do questions so we're gonna sort of alternate back and forth so brian we're gonna start with you sure so yeah there are definitely some great things from john green's books that we're going to kind of mix in with this but um will i wanted to start with the minnesota iceman because i just reread your book and for those of you listening by the way if you haven't read will's book on the minnesota iceman it's um great research, great articles that he cites and everything. So, and there is a lot of controversy slash debate about what happened. I mean, for those of you that are listening that don't know the story, the story is that uh, Frank Hansen claimed that he was hunting one day and he shot a deer and the deer was wounded and he and it went into like a kind of a swamp area and he followed the blood trail after that. And then he came across three Sasquatches who were devouring this dead corpse of a deer and they were eating its innards. It's it's pretty chilling and kind of disgusting, if you will. I mean, like drinking, bl drinking its blood from their their hands and so, and so forth. And he claims that one of the deer or I'm sorry, one of the Sasquatch, the male Sasquatch the alpha male stood up and charged him and he shot it and killed it. And then 
he was so scared he ran away. And then he says that uh, like like a month later or so, he came back just to see if what he shot was really still there. And he didn't necessarily believe his own eyes. And he kept this thing. Uh, he took the corpse and he took it and he was scared because he thought that he could be discharged from the military. Uh, he was close to his pension and, and so forth. And so he thought that he could be in risk of losing his job. So he kind of kept it quiet and he he took this thing and put it in kind of a freezer, if you will. And then it got like like sort of across the showman's or circus uh, tour, if you will, and and so forth. And uh, th then there was a story of like there were two different corpses and so forth. And there's all kind of controversy. Even there's a theory that Jimmy Stewart uh, was the, the buyer of this thing and so forth. And there's just a lot of different controversy about this whole incident and this whole thing about the Minnesota Iceman and, and so forth. So, Will, first of all, do you believe Frank Hansen's accounts? And what do other people say about this? Can you tell our listeners about the history of this incident? Well, Hansen wrote his story for Argosy magazine, you know, first his firsthand account. And he was hunting with a group of friends. Now, Hansen was a captain in the U.S. Air Force at the time on active duty. Um, so, you know, military officers, especially at that time period, um, aren't particularly prone to make things up, you know, because they can get, they can get a lot of trouble. So um, him, and, him and some friends were hunting in this area. Um, he did shoot a deer, and it, it didn't drop, so he ran off to make sure he would get it. Uh, kill the animal <clears throat> and the rest of the group went on in a direction they were going that was different from him he, he said he'd you know get the deer and catch up but um so he did he followed the deer and he came upon three creatures he said and and i don't know you know there i don't think he mentioned anything about you know male female alpha or any of that kind of stuff he said he, he came on three creatures and that were all about the same size and there was the dead deer and um they were drinking its blood with their hands and as soon as they saw him two of the individuals ran off the third one charged him he raised his rifle out of instinct and shot it and it dropped and he took off running it scared the hell out of him um and i don't recall offhand if he mentioned anything to the other group i don't believe he did uh or if he did i, I don't know i'd have to go back and look again it's been a while since i looked at that information but um it was you know extremely cold he went back uh two weeks later he said, and the creature was frozen solid, you know, and that, uh, that region, Minnesota, it, you know, my dad grew up in that part of Minnesota. So it, he talked many, many times about how cold it gets there in the winter. Um, so he retrieved the creature, brought it back to the military installation of all places into his home. And, um, he emptied the freezer and put the body in the freezer and it was there for, I think he said a couple of years and actually, you know, if you, if you don't do something with meat, um, it, it starts, um, it starts getting, um, I can't think of the term, but, but it, it starts degrading, you know, tissue. Uh, so I think so he found out some way that if you, if you filled it with water, 
it would prevent that from occurring. So he filled the freezer with water and froze the corpse. And um, let's see. So it was well, it, it was sometime he eventually retired out of the the Air Force and decided you know didn't really know what to do with it so he decided to take it on the circuit and, and show it you know and that's where this kind of circus thing comes up but um, um, anyway over time he, he eventually took it into Canada to show it and he was afraid um, that he'd be charged with murder if it proved to be some kind of human <clears throat> so well let me back up a little bit uh, before he did all that, the Smithsonian Institute sent out Bernard Hoovelmans, who, who was a Ph.D. in um, zoology, and Ivan Sanderson, everybody knows as an author and cryptozoologist, but he also had degrees from Cambridge University in zoology, uh, botany, and uh, ethnology, I believe. So the Smithsonian sent two scientists out to examine this. And, of course, it was in a block of ice. But things you don't hear about the original Iceman, and you can look up uh, Sanderson's paper and Hoovelman's papers uh, for those details. It's actually it's in the book also. But uh, <clears throat> I also know a person by the name of Doug Tarrant. Uh, Doug, Doug was quite a character. He, um, he told me that... He had played for a time with Bill Haley in the Comets when he was young. He was also had been a, a deputy sheriff for 10 years. And then he also did a lot of bit parts in movies. And I, and I think I mentioned he sent a photo of me with him and Dennis Farino uh, in one, one particular movie. So he knew a lot of uh, famous actors. And But anyway, Doug actually went to look at the Iceman himself. And some of his uh, observations were very interesting because he mentioned things like uh, it, you know, even through the ice that was relatively clear, you could see there was blood in the water as it had, you know, come out before freezing into the, uh, the water, the blood from the ice socket where it was shot and, uh, and urine in the water where the creature apparently after, uh, some time had expelled some urine from its bladder. And he said you could actually, uh, when the ice melted a little bit, you could actually smell the urine. So... He believed it to be completely genuine, as did uh, the two scientists. So, at some point, he you know took the creature you know to show it into Canada, but was afraid to come back across the border. Now, this is where the Jimmy Stewart connection comes in, and and I'm not, I don't recall where uh, where this information came from. I think it may have come from Doug himself, and I, I'm not sure where he got it. But um, uh, Jimmy Stewart, of course, was a brigadier general in the Air Force at the time. Uh, or let me think at that time, was he still in or was he retired? But anyway, you know, having been a brigadier general, you know, you would still have some pull with the military uh, besides his acting career. But the rumor went um, that he contacted, Stewart contacted Walter Mondale, who was Minnesota's, one of Minnesota's senators at the time. And that's how Hansen was allowed to come back across the border uh, without incident. And it was not long after all that happened that uh, he had a reproduction created and put in a block of ice. And that's when the original vanished. And nobody knows to this day where that original was. Although, um, I did get an email from someone who said that she was going to be shown the original 
uh, in some kind of a you know f- uh, storage facility in California. And uh, I never did get to talk to that person. They never responded back after that initial contact. But um, and then of course, not all that long ago, the the copy was was found and sold, and everybody thinks, oh well, that's that. And I remember back, you know, when I first met Green and Hinden and all them the original guys, and they talked about the Iceman, and nobody was really. It was so much up in the air because there had been so many things said and done about it. Um, they sort of divorced themselves from the topic because there wasn't any way to confirm it. So that's kind of that story in a nutshell. Yeah, and the, the interesting thing, too, that people don't realize is that, uh, well, first of all, by the way, for those of you listening, there is an episode on Unsolved Mysteries that you can watch. Not the newest ones on Netflix, but if you go back to the old episodes with uh, Robert Stack, back in the 80s and 90s there's an episode on this uh some of the stuff i I will say that they they do kind of make up i think for they fabricate for for tv purposes or i don't want to say fabricate because that's kind of a artistic license is the term yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) so they can make things up yeah some of the things they say are are not necessarily true but what's important to note is that there were actually two versions of the iceman there were like you said the original there was probably the original version and then there was the one that he made up with with hollywood people and stuff like that that maybe he took the shows because he was maybe worried about prosecution for homicide or you know and i think that even in the uh his his plea he said that like hey i just want to show this to the community but i want to be first granted amnesty or, or so forth well there there was a rumor that j edgar hoover was giving it some attention and and I think that scared him. Yeah. So I guess my question will is, uh, do you think this thing is still in existence? Like the real thing, not the, the fake ones that have been found, but I mean, like, do you think this real thing is out there or do you think it's, it's long gone? Well, if, if the lady who emailed me was, you know, correct, uh, then it is. You know, what's interesting, too, if you read the account, and by the way, I'm I'm telling or urging people that if you haven't read Will's book on uh, the Minnesota Iceman, which is a lot of these research articles that came out in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and even 90s, I think, uh, go ahead and uh, d- definitely check that out. But um, for, uh, like, in terms of, like, right now, one of the things that they say in the book is that the, if you look at the features of this creature, uh, it, it was about six feet tall, so it probably wasn't fully grown adult. But it well, no, been no. A ju- there were there were three of them, but about the same size. So oh. so that lends itself to it being mature. Um, these are probably the type four creatures, and they may not even be a Sasquatch. Oh, okay. So this could be something totally different. Some, it could Sasquatch. be, sure. Okay. Well, one of the interesting things, and maybe, Tom, we can tie this into like some of what John Green talks about in, in his book. But uh, the thing that they say about this creature is that it was six feet tall. Okay. It didn't really have hair. I mean, it was completely hair like throughout its entire body, except for a few different places. But... 
uh, its hands were extremely large and its feet were extremely large. I'm not, I'm not just talking about length, but yeah, I'm talking about the term is spatulated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So is that is that true with other Sasquatches? I mean, does John Green no, say anything about no. that? That's why. That's I mean, there's some differences among this creature and its two companions that that separate it, and that's why we, you know, why it's. I think it's one of the type fours because uh, it, it was devoid of hair mostly on its face, and and the morphology was different, you know, than what we typically see in here out there. So. Uh, and it does fit in with what I've been told about the Type 4s. So, Tom, what do we have from Green's book? Well, we got a, we got a lot of really interesting things from John Green, but i got a real quick question for you before we move on from from the, the Iceman. My understanding is, do you recall that one of the features of this creature was the uh, Air Force captain shot it in the eye and the hypersonic, the compression from that bullet actually popped the other eye out. And that would be, I think, powerful evidence that this really happened. Yeah, that, that is what was said. And when you look at the pictures, uh, now the actual pictures are kind of are difficult to see, but um, when the two scientists examined it, that was their conclusion. And yeah, right. that, and it would, it would cause that if it was a real incident, sure. If it was something faked, who would think of that? Exactly. You think about a thirty odd six or whatever caliber it was when it's going to go in through the eye socket. It's going to you bet. it's going to totally tear apart the orbital socket, and that brain is just going to be like a water balloon. And mm-hmm. pow, there it goes. Um, so sorry about that gruesome description, but I just thought that was to me that was one bit of uh, very compelling evidence that this actually happened. That's a problem with a lot of people with just opinions; they gloss over the details. And, and things that are important like that. Small details that can be very important. Absolutely. Okay, jumping on to uh, John Green. Uh, this is book number one, and this is the Sasquatch file. And on page, I believe it's on page 14. I love this. Um, he, has an, he has an account here. It's west of Spoozum. So I'm assuming that's in British Columbia, 1939. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. DeRoche told me he and another man climbed to the ridge between Harrison Lake and Fraser. Yep, okay, British Columbia. And looked down on the east side into a small valley where a group of dark-colored creatures were running around and wrestling. They frequently threw each other to the ground, but then always got right up again on two legs, never went on all fours. So it sounds like a bunch of youths just, you know, horsing around and having fun. But what it reminded me of was... Remember the story of the two of them where the guy was, you know, he was going back to his motorcycle and the two young ones confronted him mm-hmm. and and one's got a club. <laughs> a stick, yeah, smack the other one in <laughs> <Yeah>. the head. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I would think that the young ones, especially the older juveniles, probably, you know, there's probably a fair amount of horseplay when they have the time to do it. Well, you think about it. What, what creature, you know, humans and animals you know kittens puppies uh cub bears mountain lions all that stuff all it's it's part of the learning process to become an adult yeah it's and and it's you there's utility in it especially like when cats you know when they play it's uh it's part of learning hunting behavior and it's that that um instinct that's coming out so i'm i'm sure with all other animals 
you know that that young play it is exploration but it's also got utility and probably the same for these creatures as well yeah and it's it it comes about naturally because it's it's fun it's just your your instincts it's instinct yeah all right um so we're going to go on to page 19 same book three sisters wilderness area this is uh you know era 1950s now this is an interesting story the san francisco chronicle december 7th 1965 carried the following story um a set of fuzzy photographs of what purported to be a monster man animal roaming the pacific northwest wilderness was uncovered yesterday in a san francisco camera shop and it goes on and says now if this is authentic the photographs would be the only ones ever taken of a hulking like ape creature whose hideous screams have terrorized a score of you know more outdoorsmen from california to washington and bear in mind, this is 1965, so this is just before Patterson-Gimlin. The photographs were brought into the camera store for processing by, oh, more than five years ago, by a grizzled woodsman who told a wild story of being a stalked by a hairy monster in the Three Sisters Wilderness Area of Central Oregon, which is now a part of a, you know, it's a national, uh, part of the national forest. The woodsman gave his name as Zach Hamilton. He never returned for his finished films. And uh, I just thought, well, if he didn't return for him, hopefully he didn't go back to the three sisters and um, <laughs> become dinner. But anyway, it was just kind of an interesting story that it's carried for whatever reason. The Chronicle isn't, as far as I know, it's, it's, you know, it's not a tabloid uh, publication or it wasn't back then. Yeah, I, I remember seeing that picture in Green's book. That was, it's actually, I think, in one of his first uh, books. Uh, the, the Sasquatch File was his third one. Um, but anyway, yeah, that picture, it definitely predates the Patterson picture. Yeah, that, so he actually has the picture itself in one of the books. Yeah, and, uh, you know, that was the story, how he was being being followed by this creature and, and fairly frightened. And he was—he managed to snap one picture, and it's not the greatest picture, but um, it does. Well, that goes back to what we've said all along. You're—I mean, the, the fact that he had the stamina to take a picture of something, because you're really pretty well spooked when these things are in your presence. Oh, sorry, I had to sneeze there. Um, yeah, I was looking at a picture right now. It's in actually John Green's first book is uh, on the track of the Sasquatch which he published in 1968 but yeah I mean you can you can clearly see in the picture um, you know the the outline of this upright creature very bulky looking uh, as it was following him oh uh, will do uh, do you think that it was trying to attack him or it was ready to attack him I should say well, a creature like that, if it's going to attack you, it's going to it's going to get you because they're much quicker and much more agile than humans are. But uh, why it was following him, we don't know. Yeah, I mean that that's a question. What what was its purpose? Was it just observing him? Was it trying to make sure that it that uh, that he got back to his location or his tent or his truck or whatever? Oh, there's no way of knowing because nobody talked to him. Yeah, it's all. Uh, all speculation. I mean, the only information was from apparently 
um, the place that he took the photograph or took the pictures to. I'm trying to think. Let me see here. And it wasn't just a courtesy hike, you know, making sure he got out safe and sound, right? Right. <laughs> so, Brian, what questions do we have? Sure. Okay. So, one of the questions that actually came from our listeners, uh, we probably talked about this before, but uh, do you think that, or I guess this is just speculation, I guess, but do you think that maybe you take a group of let's say four or five Sasquatch and they raise their their young do you think at a certain point they send their young or maybe like one of their kids if you will for lack of a better term goes off and just like finds another group do you think that they encourage that and they tell the kid in their own language to okay go find a mate and then come back and then let's repopulate and we can grow our population or like wh what is the family dynamic? In other uh, words? We have no idea. Um, I know the groups typically range from four to six individuals. So if they were to send a young one out to bring a, a mate back, you'd end up having, having much larger groups. So that's probably not what happens. Uh, the groups in uh, Southern Washington that, that I, uh, you know, would, follow you know th throughout the year where they were um there were actually three of them there was one towards the eastern part of uh Skamania county there was the group that i called the mount st helens group on the south side that was went through yakult and places like that um each of those were four individuals there was another group of males there were three males that hung around together um just east of yakult um and Periodically, they would join with the other group, the one in that region, but they wouldn't stay with them long. So those groups stay pretty much in, in roughly those sizes. Are, are you surprised that some of these groups don't form sort of a, an alliance, for, for lack of a better term? I mean, if there is one group that's four to six individuals and they cover a certain area and they realize that, oh my gosh, there are so many human beings out there that are constantly taking over our territory and so forth. Uh, maybe we should group with another set of, they do on occasion. It's, we don't know what, what the threat is, but on occasion they do for temporarily will band together, but then they don't stay together. They'll, they'll go back in their own individual areas, but periodically they will band together. You know, I am curious about, why or well, what's the mechanism involved with uh you know when when one of the males becomes of age uh what's the mechanism that they leave the group and start their own group and i'm wondering if there might be parallels in either the gorilla or the chimpanzee uh world there probably is i mean you see in those in those uh, species that occasionally individuals will leave and they'll start their own groups, but or they'll be forced out of a group, especially if you get a male that's, you know, um, jockeying for position in that group, and, and the the uh, the other sub males that are higher ranking don't want that to happen, or the or the alpha doesn't want it to happen, and they'll eject that individual from the group. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. Maybe uh, maybe a similar situation happens with these uh, with these creatures. Most likely. 
Um, all right, so we got another uh, interesting little note here in, in John Green's book. And by the way, Will, you've said in the past, and this makes perfect sense, it's one thing to have a single uh, sighting, but when you have multiple people, multiple witnesses at the same event, it adds credibility. Um, Mount St. Helens, 1955 or 56. So this is your old stomping grounds. Pat McGuire, Paul McGuire, excuse me, of Seattle wrote to me that about 10 other people on a hike from a YMCA camp at Spirit Lake saw a white upright creature at the edge of a meadow between Coldwater Lookout and St. Helens Lake. And they're thinking it was an albino bear. Their counselor started towards it, whereupon it ran away on hind legs, leaping like an Olympic hurdles champ over fallen logs. It was taller than a man and had longish, dirty white hair. Now, where have you heard that before? <laughs> well, you know, 1988, that's or not that place. We were farther south on the Washougal River uh, where I had my second sighting. And that creature, um, I couldn't tell. I mean, from the vantage point, it wasn't long, you know, but it was, it was a grayish, whitish color uh, in its entirety. Uh, it very big. It was it was around a ten foot creature. Um, I couldn't tell if the hair was longish or not. It could have been wet. It was right next to the river. I I don't know. It, we saw it and it moved off very quickly. Uh, just a couple of steps, it was gone. But um, you know, we do know of them in that area, and that creature had been seen for many years in that area. You know, and I think about we have Sarah from Australia who talked about the one that was had the long blonde hair. And then we have Darcy in, uh, I believe she's in North Carolina, who also had one with the long blonde hair. Very similar, right? And muscular. Both both of those were muscular. Where oftentimes right. they don't appear to be muscular. It just depends on the variation. Well, let, let me ask you. Uh, so in that situation, you were like a passenger in a car, right? No, and, no I, was, just... I was driving. Oh, you were driving. Okay. So how many people do you think have those situations where they're driving along and they see something out of the corner of their eye or maybe they're just, you know, looking out the window and they see those things. And um, as you said, that that's the best situation that you could have in terms of seeing one of these things. Yeah, is you don't want to be up close, I, but um, how, how many people do you I, think I kind of call it the Goldilocks encounter it's where yeah. where you're not really in danger uh but you get to see something right the majority yeah. of the majority of encounters like my first one <laughs> where it's up close and personal and and it's an underwear changing moment but uh when john green did his calculations and they did kind of an early version of uh computer work uh and he concluded that based on those results that 70 percent of sightings occurred on or near roads you know, from people in that exact situation. Yeah, in that situation too, when you when you saw that thing, because uh, you pointed out the window, and I think the people in your passenger in in the, uh, the not the passenger seat, but um, in the back seat, they they saw it too, right? Yeah, I didn't. So they confirmed. I didn't see anything. They, I, I, I just, just I saw it. I slammed on the brakes. Yeah. That got everybody's attention, and I and I said, "Don't say anything. Sketch what you saw." And the only person that didn't see anything was my, my girlfriend at the time. She was looking at a book. 
but the other two people in the car also saw and we and they drew exactly what I saw. Exactly. So that that also brings to uh, the forefront the point that hey, if you see something, don't just uh, jot it down yourself, but also if you have witnesses that saw the same thing at the exact same time, that brings more credibility to like what you're saying is like, hey, I'm not BSing. Well, like, I, I, I it does. Saw. It does. And, and yeah. my thinking at the moment was, did I really see that? And a lot of people second guess themselves, even though it's right there in front of you. You, you kind of rub your eyes and say, did I really see that? And then that's why I said, don't say anything, sketch what you saw. And, and they, they saw exactly the same thing I did. So three of us saw it. You know, that's an interesting thought. I, I didn't realize that you were second guessing yourself and what a great way to, to get validation. It would have been a word, you know, there yeah. was, there was no way across the river. The water was, you know, way too deep and, and, and there just wasn't any way around that time of year. There's other times of the year when the river's lower and you can actually, and we did get across it later. Uh, I can't remember how much later, a couple of weeks, I think, but, uh, but the water levels fluctuate quite a bit up there. And, uh, in fact, we did, we did find some fibers on, on the trees on the other side. And I weren't, wasn't sure if they were hair or not. And, uh, so we collected them and, uh, coincidentally, my, uh, the person I rented the house from, um, that we rented the house from, uh, his brother was a biologist for the federal government and he sent the the material to him and and i somewhere along the line grover krantz got this stuff and and it wasn't it was you know the results came back to me and it was it was man-made fiber and i think krantz touted it as being sasquatch hair when it was not it was actually something that had come down the river um you know something that somebody threw in the water apparently and or along the water and it got washed down and and scraped along these tree branches but uh, uh you know and we didn't know because uh but we didn't find tracks or anything at that time because of the time frame and like i said the water raises and lowers and and tracks can get wiped out really quickly you know along the water's edge like that so but i did find tracks um a year or two later in the same proximity there were 18 inch tracks which would equate to about that size of creature so i think it was you know the tracks were from that same creature you know it's interesting you talk about the fluctuating water levels and very significant ones you and i talked about uh around chehalis washington i was doing you know i was working doing some railroad inspection and um <laughs> came across a trestle remember i told you that it was probably 60 feet or so oh, yeah. to the bottom of the trestle and they had a what's called a century flood a flood once in a century i could not imagine how it happened but somehow the water had gone had risen at least well it had to be 75 feet i probably more like 80 to 100 because it had deposited tons of debris including an old growth dug fir tree on top of this trestle i mean it's just absolutely staggering yeah anybody from western washington knows that um you know in some of those areas the water can get crazy in the winter time you know the big storms hit i've seen it up on you know the hoe and uh some of the rivers up on the uh, western side of the olympic peninsula where it's just unbelievable the damage 
you know, the scale of the damage it's caused. And you've got to think, geez, I, you know, if anybody was in the proximity where this water came rampaging down through these channels, you, you wouldn't survive. No, and they might not even find you. I mean, you might end up out in the oh, yeah. Puget Sound or something. Yeah, you'd be swept away. There'd, there'd be nothing left. Yeah, it was incredible. Um, Bob Titmus, this is interesting, uh, in the Lewiston area above Deadwood Creek. I don't know if you're familiar with that area. I'd have to look at it on the map. Okay, well, um, anyway, 1959, Bob Titmus saw a huge human-like prints on a sandbar and they're walking in and out of the water so i just thought that was interesting it's not just strictly so it's like it's looking for fish or crawdads or something yeah there's uh i i know um another guy who wrote raincoat sasquatch rob alley and rob told me one time a story of uh some people in alaska who were driving along this bay and they saw and I can't remember, the shoreline wasn't too far from where they were. Uh, and they thought it was just a, a big man in the water holding up a, fa- a salmon. And as they got closer, they saw it was this creature you know, out in the water holding up a salmon. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, they, you know, they're going to get food wherever they think they need it or they can get it. Well, and I think Titmus had an encounter similar to that. Um and there's been a few reports for people seeing them, especially up in the Pacific Northwest, you know, Washington, British Columbia, where, you know, you have commercial fishermen or just or recreational boaters who have seen one of these creatures on the shoreline. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Now, I didn't know this. Now, I know Betty Allen, isn't she the reporter who coined the term Bigfoot? Uh, no. She was there, but I think that was. Um, geez, I don't have it off the top of my. Don't have it at my fingertips. Uh, geez, let me think. Hold on. Brian, once you ask a question, in the meantime, we'll uh, while we're looking for that. Sure. So, uh, okay. So here's a question. Um, again, kind of changing the topic, and we'll get back to that a little bit. But um, in terms of teaching and educating their young. Uh, You've talked before about how when a group enters an area, they might send out like a juvenile to kind of scout the area. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I I suspect it's juveniles that are their sentries. Yeah, exactly, sentries. Uh, Do you think that in some ways, because I know that in other species, and I'm not even just talking about primates, but I'm talking about um, other species in general, sometimes what will happen is the mother or the father will kind of uh, teach their young by like having them watch them and then copy them. So do you think in a way, like, I mean, I guess not necessarily copy them, but what do you think that uh, is the way that Sasquatches kind of educate their young? Do they tell them, hey, go out and watch us and how we well, hunt? Or it, it's probably, it, they're probably exactly the same way all primates teach their young. A lot of it is, you know, we're highly visual. All primates are highly visual. A large part of our brain is devoted to vision. Um, so you hear the term monkey see monkey do that's that's very appropriate because um 
you know, imitation is how you learn how primates learn things. So by watching an adult do something, that's probably what they do. Uh, Tom, I think it was Andrew Gonzali who was the uh, reporter who coined that term. I could be wrong, but I think that's, that's who it was. No, I think you're right. I think you're right. I just remember Betty Allen, but she was kind of on the periphery. She was there a um, lot, yeah. 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 Um, now, here's an interesting one. I, I think this makes me think of the time that you were at Lee's property, uh, looking at his evidence. Bob Titmus saw cast 15-inch tracks. Okay, we get a lot of that. Uh, they went under a log with only a three-and-a-half-foot clearance. So that's that's quite a feat. Um, although it would have meant, uh, you know, just a detour of only a few feet to go around it. Knuckle marks were shown in the sand. And this is something that both Renee and, and John Green saw later on. But you found... No, you found the finger marks Yeah, on Lee's property. Actually, our, our good friend Joe DeHoyas, maybe we'll have to bring him on next week. Uh, they're, they're in Texas right now and made some really interesting finds, uh, both damaged trees and what could be knuckle prints in the sand. Very good ones. So um, we'll see about talking to him when he's back out of the field. But yeah, yeah, the finger drag marks were very interesting. I've, I've seen finger markings in clay a few times well let me ask you how wide were those finger markings oh they were an inch plus wide for each knuckle well not the knuckles the fingers it was finger drag marks oh the, the fingers the fingers okay gotcha yeah and it was about it was about a four foot section where these finger marks had drug through the clay and they were probably you know three quarters of an inch deep into the clay what do you think they were doing eating clay <laughs> it's not it's not unusual animals do that to get minerals really and our, our anthropologist john when i told him and showed him the pictures he said oh yeah that's i i would expect that because there's some minerals they don't get uh directly from food so they'll sometimes animals will eat clay to get those minerals uh was there other food sources around there or well, they were just doing this. well i mean there's you know it's in a forest setting there's whatever they're eating out there is what they're eating but uh this was near a uh oh uh, an intermittent creek which means it only runs part of the year uh there was just one tiny pool of water you know maybe a couple of feet wide and about six inches deep nearby so some of the clay was still moist and and this was freshly done it had been done probably within easily within 24 hours of us being there and this is right on Lee's property. On his on his former had, property, yeah. Yeah, and, where he had and encountered there, it. And there was also a snap tree there, not far from it. Now, is that the same place where he had been, he had concealed himself behind, I think, a stump or something for a couple hours. He had an infrared, not infrared, he had a night vision scope. And he's watching one. Do you remember that story? Yeah. Uh, no, he, this was near his house. Oh, okay. And, and so these are two different locations. Two different then. locations, yeah. Okay. Well, what what really got me with that one was he was watching it, and he accidentally hit the infrared button, which lights up the area. And immediately the creature looked right at him. So, you know, that, that was confirmation. Yeah, they do see infrared. Yeah, they can see it, sure. 
And I think that was the same area where he saw one and then it just in such a rapid amount of time just rematerialized further away. Where his close like, encounter was. Yeah. And you're like, no, there's two of them. Yeah, there were multiple individuals there. He didn't, it didn't consider it. You know, people do that. They see one and they, and something weird happens and where, you know, the spacing and time shouldn't have happened that way. And they don't consider the fact that, oh, there were multiple individuals there. You saw one, then you saw another one. You know, uh, the analogy that I've come up with in the past is like when somebody says, yeah, I've got a mouse that I see in my home from time to time. No, you got a nest of them. <laughs> you, you know, you got, you have more than one. It's not that one mouse that you see from time to time. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, well, another thing too that that uh, you you've talked about, and we were talking about this a little bit before the recording, is that uh, just hearing something doesn't necessarily scare them away, but as soon as you put light on there, as soon as you flash open the lights. Oh my gosh, they know that they're kind of a deer in headlights, and that's when they kind of like scatter and get away, right? Well, I've seen with animals quite a few times. You know, it wasn't, I did some experiments back in the late 80s, and, uh, you know, with using light and not using light, you know, the sound of the vehicle apparently made little or no difference at all. It was when the light was introduced that made the big change. When there was no light, the animals would be right on the roads. Uh, when there was light, there was nothing. I'm going to have to try that out sometime. That's, that was just too interesting. Um, okay, I'm going to go go back to Falk, Arkansas here. Uh, Lauren Coleman sent me clippings from the Hope, Arkansas Star. Um, somebody, uh, a gentleman named Bobby Ford, uh, Falk, saw a creature poke a hairy paw through a hole in the window. Then he and three other adults chased a six-foot black hairy animal that walked on, walked like a man into a wooded area. And later, it returned to the house. It grabbed Mr. Ford, pulled him down, but he got away. And Constable Ernest Walraven said a familiar creature had been reported at a nearby Jonesville uh, five or six years before. And... What does this sound like? I mean, doesn't this sound like a lot, a lot of the occurrences that was in the uh, uh, Bo- Creature of Boggy Creek? Well, in the movie Legend of Boggy Creek, um, of course, they didn't fully articulate what happened there in that incident. Uh, and, and T.W. actually, you know, our, our police friend in, t- in the Southwest, um, actually met this gentleman. And uh, we tried to get him to talk to us. He won't talk to anybody since that time because of the traumatic incident that happened. But he did tell TW, you know, in some detail what happened. Um, yeah, they, it, did, it did reach through the window for whatever reason. We don't know. That's in the film. And then the three men went out uh, to see, you know, if the creature was there or what they, you know, you can see in the film, they go out there. And I believe it was Ford who was the last in the line going out there. And the creature was on the porch waiting. And it grabbed him, threw him to the ground, and it proceeded to pummel him with the back of its hands, you know, almost like a drum roll all over him. Uh, injuries weren't, weren't serious or life-threatening, but it was enough where they had to take him to the hospital. And uh, he was, as you can imagine, extremely traumatized by that event. Does anybody... 
um, what was the year? When was uh, Legend of Boggy Creek uh, released? Oh boy, I don't recall. It was in the sixties. I think oh, okay. I think it was. I could be wrong. It could have been the early seventies, but uh, I'd have to go back and look at that. I could be. Come on, Brian, you're our that. film guy. What <laughs> you know? I'll double check. I think it was seventy four. Because I think yeah, it was. Oh, yeah. no, no, no. You're right. It was. I, I think it was seventy five because I think it was the same year as Rocky, but I'm not. Or I, well, wait, no, Rocky was seventy six. Um, it was. It was I the mid seventies. I mean, I mean, anybody can look it up, so it's not a not a huge crisis. Well, to here's know, but, uh, the reason I'm asking was. This is uh, this was reported on May second of nineteen seventy one, so it precedes that. So in other words, this wasn't somebody who saw the movie and made a report. Right, right. No, no. It's the other way around. Yeah, no. The events, all the events took place way before the film was made. Um, so yeah, that that event was probably early seventies, and it wasn't you know it wasn't in the film until much later. But I remember um, you know again going back to when I met Green and DeHinnon in nineteen seventy five that they they had brought that up. Asked me if I had seen the film. I hadn't, so I went and I can't remember. It actually came on TV, so I, I saw it there after I met them, probably in '76 sometime. And uh, I wrote both of them and asked them about it, and they said, "Oh yeah, we we believe that's entirely legitimate. The whole thing that happened." They had actually gone there and did some talking to people themselves. So looking at um, again going kind of towards uh, southeast United States. We got Gary, Nebraska, uh, July of 72. Um, <clears throat> so a, a Scotts Bluff Sheriff's Office uh, said a woman saw a hairy creature, seven-foot creature in her backyard. The Gearing police had a report from another woman of something peering into her house while a neighbor shot at a similar creature with a shotgun. And the police had found footprints. So just kind of interesting. You just got to think about this. It's one thing to go out into the wilderness and encounter these things or find the evidence, what have you. But when it comes to you in your backyard, uh, that's just that's another story. Well, and it's you know we interviewed a lady some time ago. They had kind of a similar situation where there were houses. Uh, along this one area, and then there was a, a tree line with some kind of a uh, a wetland behind all those these properties, and there was there were numerous things that were occurring there also. So a very similar kind of a setting and situation or set of situations. Now, was this the lady that grew up in Washington State, uh, not too far from where you grew up? Uh, no, this was in Texas, I believe. Oh, interesting. Okay, because that I don't remember her name. Uh, the one, the one that I just referred to, but she had a very scary. She had multiple scary encounters. Yeah. Oh area. yeah, yeah, she did. And and it's funny. I'll hear from people, even today, periodically. They'll they'll come out and say, "Hey, you know," and they grew up in the same area I did, and and they've seen things, and never ever talked about it. And nobody did. Well, you know, it, it, that's so interesting because. We do hear, in fact, I've read, even today, I mean, I, I, like I said, like I, I read your book again, and I've been reading some accounts of people that say that they have experienced something, they saw something, but because of job purposes, like, for example, military, they don't want to risk, like, losing their, their career, 
or it might be you know a park ranger or so forth they don't want to risk coming out and saying something even coming on our show mm-hmm. because they feared that they there could be consequences like if somebody finds out oh my gosh like you, you went on the show or or like you said something if you're a, a park ranger and you came out and and said something oh well, the authorities are going to come down on you and so forth so there are probably so many people out there that have stories that are just so scared to come out and i can't blame them oh absolutely basically. yeah yeah it's a it's a death knell to certain job fields yeah and I'm hoping there's going to be kind of a softening of that, you know, very similar to the way, uh, you know, the whole UFO thing was, uh, you know, for, and I think there were some valid reasons for that, but uh, eventually that just sort of came out. Now they didn't, Well, there's no conclusive information what they are, just that they are. You know, they put that out, but it's still, even that subject, I'm sure with many professions is still something they're not going to talk about. You know, it's like airline pilots. Um, you know, they're not going to come out and talk about things they see because they're yeah. afraid of losing their jobs, even though that's how that stuff came out. Well, well, I can tell you, yeah. I mean, somebody contacted me and they said that, I mean, they told me their story and everything. And it, it was a very fascinating story. But they said, hey, listen, no offense, but I don't want to come on your show because people are going to recognize my voice and so forth. And um and it's kind of a shame because there are probably a lot of people out there that do have stories, but they're just not willing to share because of their own, you know, professional careers. And they don't want people to know that, hey, I'm the person that saw this and here's my encounter and so forth. And it's, but, not, um, it's not just professional concerns either. I've had people contact me the exact same way. You know, I'm, I'm the only person they ever told their story to put it in writing. Um, but don't want it used anywhere. They they just don't want. Uh, they had to get it off their chest, but they don't want it out in public. So, um, you know, it's it's their own personal uh, nightmare that they don't want to don't want it out there. That's yeah. that's exactly right. And here's something to consider: when you do have an encounter with one of these things, and it's you've got you've suddenly hit that aha moment. They do exist. Well, you know this is true. It can dominate your thoughts. You can go how do you process day it? after day. Yeah, how do you process it? And you you find it. You think about it before you go to bed at night. You find you're thinking about it when you get up in the morning. You think about it throughout the day. It's a burden that you're carrying. So if you work in a profession or if you're just somebody who who saw one, um, it's something you've you you really do want to seek out another person to be able to share it with. And it's hard it's to find it be... because there's so much yes. garbage out there. <laughs> yes. You you need to find a safe place, a safe person that you can confide with and kind of unburden and yourself, I can guarantee get it off you, your shoulders. I can guarantee you people out there, the vast majority of the people out there involved in this subject that have shows or YouTube stuff or what have you, websites, you name it, um, their primary goal is to make a buck. You know, whether it's, you know, getting your getting your story on their show, whether they're reading it or interviewing you and and they're making a buck off it. Um, they don't care about the witness and the witness is most right. important, it, their privacy and helping them cope with this. Yes, it's exactly right. And and people, of course, they're not stupid. They, they sense they pick up on this. And who wants to be 
exploited exactly for somebody else's benefit yeah. exactly i mean i get people contact me often who need help with situations and i and I offer them the best that i know to do and, and usually works for them um there was there was a lady in australia and i'm not going to mention her name or details because she asked me not to um they eventually had to move because the situation got so dire there that they they had to move uh, but thankfully they were able to and and you know, they were able to get away from what was ramping up behavior, and ramping up behavior is very dangerous. So, um, but we get that a lot, and it's if we can help somebody, we will, by all means. You know, and again, talking about Australia, the parallels. I mean, it's basically the same thing over there as it is over here. And I, you know, I've given that some thought. That shouldn't be surprising in the sense that bears in North America. Their behavior is the same as bears in China, the same as bears yeah, in Russia, yeah. if, Eastern Europe. If you, it's, it's, yeah, it's, if you look at animals that are the same animals and from one continent to the next, their behaviors are going to be almost identical uh, with some variation, but not a lot. And these are going to be the same thing. The only, the only animal on the planet whose behaviors are different from region to region are humans. And right, that's, more about right, exactly. us. that's more about us than it is about animal species on the planet. Have any more questions, Brian? Yeah, sure. Uh, so, one of the things that I've been wondering about is about these creatures. Are they more brazen or courageous in recent years than what we may have seen in the past? Meaning that, for example, people are expanding at an incredibly <laughs> high rate like overpopulation might be, I mean, that's a whole another political debate, but anyways, though, we definitely are expanding in terms of population and area. And as a result, we're kind of going into these creatures pop uh, territory. Do, I mean, do you think that they kind of react in more of a, a brazen or aggressive way, or are they more intimidated? Do you well, think? Okay. Here's something that, you know, if people, people think that a lot, that we're overpopulating. I, you know, tell people, if you really want to see the population of this country, get in your car and drive from one coast to the other. There are population pockets. Those are overcrowded. The country is not overcrowded. Um, so that, I don't think, really has much impact on the creatures. Uh, a little bit, but not a huge amount. So, having said that, um, what's affecting that behavioral difference is our behavior, you know, up until probably the eighties sometime, you know, we were still going out shooting at everything. It was okay to do that. Uh, and it has become not okay to do that since that time period. So we don't do it anymore. And that alters not just these creatures behavior, but all animals behaviors out there, especially when it comes in conjunction with human beings. So, yeah, their behavior is a little more aggressive now. Well, we've also talked about the expanding population. The the We don't know just how much it is, but it is from what, from the 50s and 60s, which I think there's an estimate of, estimated 50,000 of the creatures. Well, that's what I was told. And I that was what I was told through my Yeah, contacts. and was that North America? That was, was, that was that North America. So here's, so here's really, I mean, with... You know, their numbers are more, but 
what it is when it comes down to food. It's like that video I sent you about the uh, uh, the last of the hunter gatherers. You know, the true hunter gatherers. What's important? What was important to to pre culture humans was food, front and center, always. Uh, Going to be the same with these creatures. So, if we have more, um, you know, rural areas being developed, that's more food being presented for the creatures in terms of pets, pet food, you know, livestock, livestock food, things like that. We leave a lot of stuff sitting around. It's an opportunity for them. That's why there's going to be more, uh, more encounters and more aggressive ones. Well, in some of those rural areas that you're talking about that are, that are being developed are actually being developed right on the, the line, the border between uh, private land and national forest service sure. national sure so the creatures have a it, it's perfect for them they can zip in and out get the food and then poof you know disappear again. yeah they're probably thinking wow look at this we got the we got the buffet moving in next door lucky us <laughs> right yeah <laughs> well listen fellas we're just about out of time any final thoughts for this segment before we take a break and move on to the third segment I would like to do more of this in the future. If our, I'd like to hear from our audience. Uh, did you guys appreciate the little change of pace where we discussed, uh, we have both Q&A and, and then just kind of discuss topics in John Green's books and, and other books. So let us know, and you can let us know in the comments, obviously. But also, if you, if you want to get on the air or if you just want to, uh, another way to reach us would be questions at creekdevil.com, and we'd love to hear from you. Brian, how about you? Yeah, no, just to echo what, what uh, Tom said, you know, questions. Uh, don't just go to the patreon.com website, but go to, or if you have questions, go to questions at patreon.com, or I'm sorry, Patreon. Uh, questions at creekdevil.com don't just go to creekdevil.com and then also yeah we do have a patreon page so if you're interested in supporting the show and you get a lot of bonus material you can see what that's what's there at uh, uh, patreon.com slash creekdevil and then also just a uh, kind of a uh, question for anybody that's listening out there from Michigan if you have any encounters from Michigan, I'm just curious to see like where your encounters were and are, or if you've heard any stories, because I've heard all kinds of weird things from Michigan, that's where I'm from originally, and I've heard even stories from, as weird as it sounds, the Metro Detroit airport, uh, you know, some place around there. So I'd be curious to see and to hear about any stories about from that area so just uh let us know at questions at creekdevil.com and once again thanks everybody for for listening we really value our our listeners and uh we hope to make your experiences as best as possible and uh like i said go to patreon.com slash creekdevil if you want to have bonus material and um and uh yeah i guess we'll uh, continue next week with another great show so thanks all right everyone appreciate you listening we always appreciate our listeners um and if you do if you do want to chat with 
you know, myself or one of us, you can you can contact us at Creek Devil, of course, and, or if you want to communicate directly with me, um, you can contact me at williamjevning at yahoo.com. And, um, you know, if you just want to keep your story private, that's fine. You know, um, if you need some help with this, coping with it, or, you know, some uh, things you can do to get rid of the creatures, you know, let me know and I'll help you out with that. So stay tuned for the next segment, everybody. We're going to be right back. Preliminary description of the external morphology of what appeared to be the fresh corpse of a hitherto unknown form of living hominid. This paper describes, in somewhat general terms, the results of a preliminary inspection of the corpse of what appeared to be some form of a large primate of hominid form. The notion that it is a composite manufactured from parts of human corpses and or other animals must, of course, still be considered, since the body has not yet actually been examined. Should it be, the artist who put it together, inserting several million hairs in the skin before it rotted or was preserved, would have to have had some concept to work from, and there is no such extent. This for the following reason. This body is not that of any hominid or pongid, and what is much more significant, it does not conform to any reconstruction or artist's conception of any fossil man or ape or other anthropoid. Its general features and particular characters, as detailed above, display an extraordinary mixture of what have until now been assigned either to men or apes, but it also shows others that have never been assigned or attributed to any of either. However, two separate companies specializing in model-making for waxwork museums, exhibits, and film companies in Hollywood, California, have been traced, and individual model-makers working for both have stated that they made copies with wax or latex and using hair from bears. Mr. Hansen, the caretaker, informed us in January of this year that such a model had been made in April of 1967 because the owner of the original was worried about its safety. An object such as this could possibly be constructed, starting with the skin of a large male pale-skinned chimpanzee, using a human skull, glove makers, wood racks for the hands, and so forth. The original could have been of this nature, and then a copy or copies made from it. Just in case this might not be the origin of the specimen, we should consider the alternative. Namely, that it is a genuine corpse of a comparatively recently killed specimen, not fossilized in any way, of some form of parahominid. This is the considered opinion of Huvelmans and is based on as thorough an examination as he was able to make, considering that the specimen is encased in ice that is more than half opaque and sunk about two feet below the glass cover of its container. And, if this is the correct interpretation, we would opine that it would more probably be on the hominid rather than the pongid stem of anthropoid evolution. Just where it should be placed on that stem cannot, of course, be said until it has been properly examined out of its ice envelopment. Further, and much more important, will be any analysis of its blood, plasma, and other body fluids, if they are still sufficiently preserved for typing. Even then, 
We may well be confounded because this specimen displays such a combination of characters attributed to the two presently thought quite widely separated families of anthropoid primates, and this constrains us to add a note of added caution. In view of the fact that pongids and hominids have now been shown to fall into several groups, together, Vidi, the Caucasoid and Congoid hominids, with the gorillas and chimpanzees on the one hand, and the mias, siamangs, and gibbons among the pongids with the mongoloid hominids on the other, is it not possible that not only the hominids, but the pongids have a grid-like genetic origin? If this be the case, could the concept not be further extended to include all the anthropoids, so that there may have been, and in this case may still be, truly man-like apes and ape-like men? This specimen is by several criteria a hominid, noticeably by its feet, but it has many pongid characters. Are the diagnostic features we are currently employing to separate the apes from men valid? If not, are both our families invalid, and could both groups form but one complex? If so, we will have to add the hairy man to Desmond Morris's naked ape. Anything of this nature will absolutely demand an overall revision of our ideas of both physical and social anthropology, and will present a somewhat alarming problem to scientists and religionists alike. This author's personal opinion as to the precise identity of this specimen is, at the moment, not formulated. As a trained zoologist and one who spent many years collecting mammalian and particularly primate specimens for examination, dissection, and preservation in the field and while fresh, we would not presume to make any definite pronouncement upon anything other than a purely generalized overall description of its external appearance. The corpus must be freed from its ice encasement and properly examined first. However, some speculation as to the taxonomic status of this creature, if it finally proves to be real, is perhaps permissible, since we do have detailed measurements and photographs to back it up. It is Huvelman's opinion, which he states categorically in his paper, that this body represents the fresh remains of a Neanderthaloid human. Such hominids are currently classed as a subspecies of Homo sapiens, yet Huvelman's has named this item Homo pongoids, and thus of full specific rank. Though we suggested that appellation, pongoids, in the first place, we envisaged it either as a subspecific to Homo sapiens, since we have no idea as to the external morphology of the fossil Neanderthaloids, or merely as a possible specific for some other genus of anthropoid. However, this suggestion was purely tentative in that, despite the existence of this specimen, we have no more idea of its anatomy, histology, or physiology than we do of the external morphology of the Neanderthalers. I am therefore officially disassociating my name from that given in Huvelman's paper. We are constrained to do this not only because we are personally averse to naming any specimen before it has been physically obtained and properly examined, but also more precisely because we are not convinced that this specimen is Neanderthaloid or even a member of the genus Homo as presently constituted. Further still, it might not even be an anthropoid, but rather a survivor of a line divergent from, and possibly lying between, the hominid and the pongid branches, 
but derived from a common ancestor to all three. In the absence of the corpus itself, as of the time of writing, and in view of our total lack of knowledge of the external morphology of any anthropoids other than the living hominids and pongids, we consider it to be most incautious to attempt to identify this specimen as of now, and more especially, to confine it within a subspecific title. And anent this, one essential feature of this specimen seems to have been overlooked. What can be seen of the conformation of the face, meaning the front of the head, in no way conforms to any known fossil hominid, apart from the juvenile australopithecoids, and particularly to that of any Neanderthaler of comparable size. There is no prognosticism, virtually no brow ridges. The forehead does not slope acutely. The two teeth that can be seen are infantile. In fact, from what can be assessed of the anatomical structure of the fore part of the skull, this creature is almost as far removed from the standard Neanderthaloid construction as is possible. In these same respects, it shows no more affinity with Homo erectus, Homo habilis, what is known of same, or more especially, such lower types as were once called pithecanthropines, australopithecines, or such like. In fact, if it does prove to be a hominid, by whatever criteria may be decided upon to define that family when and if it is examined, it might well be called Homo pongoids, but it most certainly should not be assigned to the Neanderthal race or complex. Our final conclusion, therefore, is that the specimen we inspected was that of a genuine corpse as opposed to a composite or a construction, and that it is some form of primate. We would categorize it, as of now, as an anthropoid, but whether it is a hominid, a pongid, or a representative of some other previously unsuspected branch of that superfamily, we are not prepared either to say or even to speculate. There are certain firm indications that the specimen examined by Huvelmans and this writer, though it has been removed from the place where we saw it, and hidden while a substitute model has been installed, has not been destroyed and may therefore eventually become available for proper scientific examination. Until such time as this is achieved, we advise that it serve only as a pointer to the possible continued existence of at least one kind of fully-haired, ultra-primitive, anthropoid-like primate, and be used only as a lever to pry open the hitherto hidebound notion that any such thing is impossible. Welcome. This story is being brought to you by William Jevning, and is being narrated by Jim Sower. This story comes to us from Frank Hansen. It is his story, and it is entitled, I Killed the Ape-Man Creature of Whiteface. Is the creature a fabrication, a product of a vivid imagination, expert craftsmanship, and a showman's flair for illusion, or is it really a flesh-and-blood clue to the development of the family of man? Wanted, dead or alive, the abominable snowman, also known as Yeti, Oma, Almesty, Sasquatch, and other aliases, the fugitive is a two-footed mammal known scientifically as Homo pongids, or ape-like man. Suspect has been identified as a missing link between the ape and modern man. Eyewitnesses have reported that he closely resembles the Neanderthal species of subhuman. Suspect is described as follows. Height, six to nine feet, 
Weight, 250 to 800 pounds. Complexion, wind-burned and ruddy. Dress, suspect's body is covered with one-inch long reddish-brown hair except proportions of the face, hands, and feet. He has been seen in the Himalayan mountains, in Russia, United States, and Canada. If some persistent hunter should capture such a creature, we might expect that fame, fortune, and a footnote in scientific history would be his reward. The enigma of the missing link has plagued scientists of the Darwinian theory for many years. The actual body of an ape-man specimen would end this controversy and prove the existence of the abominable snowman. The rewards would be considerable. Through pure chance and random circumstance, I obtained the body of such a creature. Two world-renowned scientists examined the corpse and declared it was a genuine ape-man creature, scientifically identified as Homo pongids. Belgian scientist Bernard Heuvelmans declared, For the first time in history, a fresh corpse of a Neanderthal-like man has been found. It means that this form of hominid, thought to be extinct since prehistoric times, is still living today. The long search for rumored ape-men or missing links has been successful. Huvelman's associate, author and scientist Ivan Sanderson, reported in a national magazine that the creature was the genuine article. This was no phony Chinese trick or artwork. When the newspapers published articles on my specimen, I was astonished and then concerned to discover the creature was labeled a hoax by the prestigious Smithsonian Institution of Washington, D.C. To my knowledge, no member of the Smithsonian scientific staff has ever examined the specimen described by Dr. Huvelmans and Ivan Sanderson. I became extremely nervous when the newspapers in both the U.S. and England pointed out that if this creature is real, then there may be the question of how and why it was killed. My fears led me to an attorney and personal friend to explain the possibility of a murder charge. The Federal Bureau of Investigation and hordes of lesser law enforcement officials revealed a sudden ominous interest in my specimen. On one occasion, I had to ask my U.S. Senator for his help to get me out of an untenable situation with the Bureau of Customs and the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare. My dreams of recognition from the scientific community have vanished. My attorney adequately summed up the situation one morning. Frank, if you're not careful, you'll end up in a prison cell. Now, for the first time, I want the full story on this creature to be published. I have not asked for and will not receive a single cent from Saga magazine. My main desire is to eliminate much of the supposition and conjecture about a story that has become the biggest controversy in the scientific world in the past decade. Let us start at the beginning. In 1960, I was an Air Force captain and pilot assigned to the 343rd Fighter Group in Duluth, Minnesota. I had five years to go until my retirement as a 20-year Air Force career officer and was looking forward to a quiet life on a small farm somewhere in southern Minnesota. I enjoyed being stationed in Duluth 
as the hunting and fishing in northern Minnesota is the best in the world. During the 1960 deer hunting season, I was staying in a small resort on the shores of the Whiteface Reservoir, approximately 60 miles north of Duluth. Lieutenants Roy Affett and Dave Allison and Major Lou Schrott were the other members of the hunting party. We left the cabin a few minutes after six on the second morning, and although I had not spotted a deer on the opening day, I was confident that a narrow neck of swamp where I had hunted was one of the best locations in the area. I sat motionless on a hillside overlooking this pine-crested thicket for almost two hours. I was about to leave for another location when a movement at the edge of the swamp caught my eye. My pulse quickened as I thumbed for the safety catch on my custom 8mm Mauser. A large doe, partially obscured by a cedar tree, was staring directly at me. Suddenly, a shot echoed from the other side of the swamp. With one frightened leap, the doe dashed out of the thicket and headed straight towards me. I raised my gun into firing position, just as she spotted me. Making three great leaps broadside, she scrambled back toward the swamp. I fired just as she reached the edge of the trees, and she fell, headlong, onto the ground. I bolted my rifle and tried to get off another shot, but she was up and out of sight into the heavy brush before I could take aim. I walked toward the thicket where I located large spots of blood on the frozen grass. I also discovered that the wounded doe had left a clear trail that led straight into the swamp. There was no snow on the ground, and my borrowed compass proved useless. It was against my better judgment, but I decided to follow the trail for a short distance into the swamp. I pushed slowly along, following the doe's bloody trail, expecting her to be lying just beyond the next bush. After an hour, however, I realized that it would be impossible to pack the deer out even if I did find her. I checked my bearings and decided to take just a few more steps before retracing my trail out of the swamp. Stepping over a small cedar log, I heard a strange gurgling sound just ahead. Startled, I raised my gun and listened to the noise for a moment, concluding that the deer had gone down and was strangling in her own blood. Cautiously, I eased my way toward the sound. Suddenly, I froze in horror. The middle of a small clearing, there were three hairy creatures that at first looked like bears. Two of these creatures were on their knees, tearing at the insides of a freshly killed deer. The deer's innards were scattered around the clearing, and the things were scooping blood from the stomach cavity into the palms of their human-like hands. Raising their cupped hands of fresh blood to their mouths, they swallowed the liquid. Without warning, the male leaped straight up into the air from his crouched position. His arms jerked upward, high over his head, and he let out a weird screeching sound. Screeching and screaming, he charged towards me. I cannot remember aiming my rifle, nor do I recall pulling the trigger. But a bullet must have slammed into the beast's body. As blood spurted from his face, the huge creature staggered, seemingly stunned by this unexpected happening. 
I do not recall ejecting my spent shell, nor do I recall firing my rifle again. In many sweat-drenched nightmares, however, I have vividly envisioned the blood-covered face lying on the ground beside the mutilated deer. I have absolutely no recollection of ever seeing the other two creatures again. They seem to have vanished into thin air. Blind with fear, I started to run. I dashed over the swampy terrain, not knowing or caring in which direction I ran. My only thought was to get away from those horrible things. I stumbled, fell, picked myself up, and fell again. I thought they were right behind me. Finally, I fell onto the frozen marshland completely exhausted, not caring if the creatures caught me. I lay there, waiting for the attack. I have no recollection of time. Perhaps my mind blanked out. When I regained composure, there was only the natural silence of the swampland. I wondered if I hadn't fallen asleep and dreamed the whole thing. Regardless, I knew I must find my way out of the swamp. My compass, which I had borrowed from Major Schrott, was next to worthless. I raised my rifle and fired the three rapid shots that signal a hunter is in trouble. Nothing happened. I reloaded my rifle and fired again. This time returning shots echoed in the distance. I moved in the direction of the shots, but stopped periodically and listened intently for some familiar sound. After traveling a considerable distance, I finally heard someone calling to me. Traveling in the direction of the voice, I finally emerged onto a hilly clearing and saw a group of hunters standing around their camp. I approached, and, hiding my fright, explained that I had become lost from my hunting party that morning. Two of the hunters seemed to know where our green pickup was parked and volunteered to drive me back in their automobile. It was past noon now when we arrived back at our parked truck. Lou and the boys were waiting. I threw the compass at Lou. That compass isn't worth a cent, I complained. Huh, you're the great white hunter who got lost, someone chuckled, chiding me for my lack of wood lore. On several occasions that day, I started to mention my harrowing experience to my companions. I wanted to confide in someone, but how could I? Military retirement was less than five years away. I might lose everything if the story got out. The night surgeon might even believe I was mentally unstable and unfit for flying duty. I could be forced out of the Air Force on a medical discharge. My mind reeled with the possibilities. If I returned to the swamp, what would it prove? Had I killed the creature? Was it an escaped gorilla? Or was it a man dressed up for some deer-hunting prank? Except for being completely hair-covered, the thing seemed to have every feature of a human being. What about the two creatures that had escaped? Or had the whole thing been the product of my imagination? Everything was unreal and totally incomprehensible. Our hunting party returned home, and I spent a month wrestling with my conscience. I had been troubled with migraine headaches several years previously, and 
Now they returned with a pounding intensity. I swallowed dozens of pills each day. As both an instructor and instrument check pilot, I always flew as aircraft commander. I often had a pilot who was neither current nor checked out for the particular aircraft we were flying, so I avoided airtime, except for a single four-hour flight near the end of the month. I knew it was impossible to continue to fly until the mystery of my experience in the swamp had been resolved. I watched the weather closely, waiting for a heavy snow, which would provide good tracking conditions. I would not consider going into that swamp again without being able to backtrack in my own footsteps. On the 29th of November, it happened. The weather reported five inches of fresh snow in the Whiteface area. On Friday, December 2nd, a warm front moved in, and the snow was slowly melting, making ideal tracking conditions. By now, I had formed a plan. The following day, I took my automatic shotgun, several rounds of double-odd buckshot, hooked my swamp buggy to the back of my pickup, and with Mike, my faithful dog, headed north to Whiteface Reservoir. Passing Ranta's resort, I proceeded to the east side of the lake. After the bug was unhooked and the chains installed on the huge DC-3 aircraft tires, I headed down the old logging trail looking for the area where we had parked our truck during the hunting season. Mike was trembling with anticipation, and I was shaking with fear. Any mishap could be disastrous. It seemed doubtful that any other human would enter this portion of the woods for the rest of the winter. I was also aware of the possibility of encountering one or more of the things, and not knowing what to expect created a fear that was almost causing me to turn back. The bug ran beautifully as I inched through the soft snow, so I turned my attention to searching for a familiar landmark. After making several lucky guesses at Wise and the trail, I suddenly recognized the small clearing where the truck had been parked. Again, almost uncontrollable fear gripped me as I parked the bug. My heart raced wildly as I pulled my shotgun from the rack and headed from my old stand overlooking the swamp. The old trail that had been taken by the wounded doe was covered with snow, so I inched in a general direction toward the scene. It was difficult to walk, as small logs covered with snow acted as built-in obstacles. I was constantly on the alert for tracks in the melting snow. Once I fell across a snow-covered log and just remained there to rest for a few minutes. Mike, working in his usual circle, jumped a browsing deer that came crashing through the thicket. <laughs> my heart leaped into my throat. I was ready to run when Mike started to dig at the body under the snow. I realized then that the events of that horrible day a month earlier had been real. I staggered to my feet, called Mike to my side, and spent several minutes staring at the huge, hairy body. Finally, I brushed the snow away from the head and noticed that one eye seemed to be completely missing. But there was so much frozen blood it was impossible to tell for sure. The face was not covered with hair, but the neck, shoulders, and stomach were caked with frozen blood. 
The creature's left arm was twisted under the body, but I compared the right hand with my own. This hand appeared identical to mine, except it was twice as large. As I was inspecting the creature, my fear suddenly vanished. I was now convinced I had not killed a true human being, but something similar to man, perhaps some freak of nature. Maybe it was a mutant of some type. I examined the poor creature and realized it was in a perfect state of preservation. I also noticed that the dead deer had been completely devoured by predators. Why hadn't these predatory animals eaten the flesh of the hairy thing? There was indeed a mystery surrounding this freak. I decided that the creature should not be left in the swamp. I was still concerned with the scandal that could jeopardize the retirement from the Air Force. It was impossible to dig a grave in the frozen earth. If the creature was left in the swamp, a wandering hunter might stumble over the body in the spring. An investigation by law officers might lead the authorities to me. There was only one thing to do. I left the swamp buggy concealed in the woods and went back to Duluth with my pickup. I told my wife that the bug had become stuck and that I would have to get a pick and shovel and axe and a chainsaw. I returned to the swamp the following day and inched the bug back into the bush, cutting a trail as I went. Using an ice chisel from the truck, I chopped the creature's body from the frozen earth. Loading that hulk onto the rear platform of my swamp buggy was one of the most difficult experiences of my life. The body was rough, dead weight and was frozen solid. Finally, the icy form was laid out on the platform and I snugged it down with cargo straps that were standard equipment in the bug. When I reached the pickup, I struggled to transfer the monstrous form to the truck bed. Again, the nylon straps were indispensable. It was after dark when I pulled up to my home in the suburban military housing area of Duluth. My wife, Irene, was almost hysterical when she saw the gigantic corpse. I was now beginning to accept the creature, and finally I convinced her of the seriousness of my experience. "'What do you plan to do with the thing?' she asked, fearfully staring at the ape-like form. "'Well, I can't dig a grave. The ground is frozen solid,' I explained." Maybe we can keep it in the freezer until spring. We had just purchased a large food freezer two weeks earlier. But the freezer is full of meat, Irene protested. Then we'll have to give the meat away, I answered. My retirement is more important than a few dollars worth of meat. She finally agreed to my plan. Like many military wives, she was accustomed to adjusting to unforeseen and unpredictable circumstances. We put our three children to bed, waited until they were asleep, and then, with the use of straps, dragged the carcass of the creature into the basement. "'We'd better keep the thing covered,' Irene said, as she went upstairs for an old army blanket. "'I'll keep the kids out of the basement and clean out the freezer.' When I returned home after duty on Monday, I discovered my wife had cleaned out the freezer, as she had promised. However, she was almost hysterical over the thought of having that horrible thing in the basement. I don't know what it is, she confided, 
but it smells terrible and the odor is all over the house. Despite the stench, we entered the basement and bent the creature's arms and legs so that it would fit into the freezer. Either the body was still frozen or rigor mortis had set in. It was an extremely difficult task, and we both breathed easier when the creature was completely in and the top securely fastened. We washed our hands several times and placed our clothes in the washer to soak. Later that night, we opened the basement windows for a thorough airing. Let's not tell a single person about this, I cautioned. We'll just leave it there till spring. The creature remained in our food freezer for almost a month. Then my curiosity drew me into the basement. Man or animal? A mutant human or a cross between the ape and man family? There were a hundred different explanations. I opened the freezer and discovered the creature's body was dehydrating. Certain parts of the body looked like pieces of dried-up meat. I went back upstairs and told Irene of the dilemma. If we bury it in the spring, it won't make any difference, I said. But if we learn what it is and decide to keep it, then it should be properly preserved. I don't know how to keep it from drying out. My wife thought a moment. Remember those Canadian lake trout that we kept for two years? We froze them in ice water and they stayed fresh. Perhaps the thing could be preserved that way. It's worth a try. We started by pouring 20 gallons of ice water into the freezer each day. The job was completed within a week, and our incredible secret was now encased in a solid block of ice, safe from prying eyes and freezer burn. To make certain that no one could open the freezer, the door was locked and I kept the only key. When the spring thaw arrived, I was faced with another dilemma. It would require several days to melt the ice around the creature's body, and, in the process, the basement of our home would be filled with an odorous stench. I was also concerned about the danger of burying the thing. The passerby might see me digging a grave and alert the police. Transporting the body away from my home to a gravesite was equally dangerous. I envisioned a traffic accident with a smelly creature tossed out on the pavement and a police officer staring at me as I fumbled for some rational explanation. My wife was now accustomed to having the creature in the freezer, so I decided to leave it in the basement and not press her luck. In the summer of 1961, we purchased a farm near Rolling Stone, Minnesota. In preparation for my retirement, we agreed that the family would move to the farm at that time and I would commute on weekends. I could not risk allowing a moving company to transfer our freezer, so I rented a U-Haul truck and moved all of our furniture by myself. Friends helped skid the heavy meat-packed freezer out of the basement and into the truck. A couple of fellows asked why I didn't remove the meat first, but I explained that I wanted to keep it cold inside for the long trip to the farm. Besides, I couldn't seem to locate the key in all the confusion of moving. The trip from Duluth to Rolling Stone took seven hours, and the top layer of ice had started to melt. Friends and relatives again assisted in unloading the furniture and skidding the heavy freezer into the basement. I breathed easier when it was safely situated in the utility room of our remote farmhouse. 
I could not get by until retirement without fear of exposure. I was concerned that the power failure might occur, so I purchased a standby generator to cope with such an emergency. It was also gratifying to know that it could now be buried at any time in our back 40 without fear of being seen. In November 1965, I retired from the Air Force after completing 20 years of active service. I joined my family at the farm and quickly became disillusioned with the inactivity of life. I now had plenty of opportunity to read and for the first time became acquainted with the many stories and legends about the so-called abominable snowman. The more articles I read, the more certain I became that the thing in our freezer was a type of snowman. I now began to make discreet inquiries about the statute of limitations on murder and learned that there was no time limit in the state of Minnesota. Because of this, the decision was made to just sit tight with our specimens safely in the freezer for a while longer. In December 1966, I happened to meet a veteran showman who quickly recognized my boredom of civilian life and suggested that I become a full-time showman by exhibiting a rare old John Deere tractor that I had acquired and loaned to the Smithsonian Institution. It had been returned to me from Washington, and I was showing it on highly selective basis. Take your tractor on a full-time circuit of major fairs. You won't get rich, but you'll have fun and discover a whole new world out there, he said. Suddenly, a thought dawned on me. Hey, would some sort of a frozen hairy creature resembling a prehistoric man make a good attraction? (laughs) The showman almost choked. It's a great idea, but where would you ever get such a specimen like that? Perhaps I could get one made, I said, not being able to divulge my secret. I returned home with only one thought in mind and immediately consulted with my attorney concerning the legalities of exhibiting the creature. He listened with amusement until I drove him to my farm and opened the freezer. He stared down into the cloudy ice with horrified fascination. Later, we discussed the legal aspects. There's always the possibility of a murder charge if this thing is judged to be human, he informed me. There are also laws concerning the transportation of dead bodies. I can see all sorts of legal difficulties. I'm convinced the creature would make a great exhibit, I said. Isn't there any way to do it by creating a model? He lit another cigarette and thought a moment. You have the original body. The authorities will be after it because this thing is the scientific find of the century. However, it might be possible to create a model, as you suggested. Maintain a record of the model's construction, but show the real creature instead. If the officials pressure you, it's a small matter to produce photos of the model taken during different phases of fabrication. Better than that, I replied. I'll even exhibit the model for the first year so that it will be accepted by carnies as a bogus show. In January 1967, I made sketches of the real creature and went to Hollywood to confer with men who make models for the motion picture industry. 
I talked with Bud Westmore, the director of makeup at Universal Studios. He informed me that such a model might cost up to $20,000. Westmore didn't have the time to make the creation, but he agreed to offer his technical knowledge if I needed it. He also agreed that it would be a challenging endeavor. I then consulted with a staff member of the Los Angeles County Museum. He suggested that I contact Howard Ball, an independent artist who was creating life-size fiberglass elephants to be displayed at the La Brea Tar Pits. I later engaged Ball to sculpture the carcass and mold the body. John Chambers, a makeup artist and Academy Award winner from 20th Century Fox, suggested that a small wax studio in Los Angeles could implant the hair according to my specifications. I approached Pete and Betty Coral. They agreed to do the work and implanted each hair individually with an open-ended needle. I constantly directed this portion of their work, and it was magnificent. They were great artists and a pleasure to deal with. By the time the model was completed, I had another worry. There was no guarantee that any exhibit would make money on the fair circuit, yet I had spent several thousand dollars, some of it borrowed, to obtain the model. Despite my misgivings, I enlisted the aid of a friend in Pasadena, and we added the finishing touches to make it look as close to the specimen in my freezer as possible. The bloody eyes, broken arm, and the blood-soaked hair was carefully duplicated to match the original. It was now time to freeze the ice around the model, and this presented a few humorous moments. I rented a cold storage room from a Los Angeles ice company, and at 8 a.m. one sunny morning, I pulled in with my monstrous creation in the rear of my station wagon. A stunned executive happened to stroll by and did several double takes. "'Where are you going with that thing?' he stammered. Well, "'I've rented a storage room for a few days,' I explained." "'In our company?' he stared at the model and twisted his hands in anguish. "'My gosh, was that a living thing? "'This is a food processing plant. "'Get that thing out of here before a government inspector sees it.' "'Later I arranged to ice down the model at a privately owned locker plant "'that had recently shut down. "'The final phases of my creation were completed there.' I placed the model in a refrigerated coffin designed especially for the exhibit. This was done with heavy straps and a rented forklift. The coffin was transported in a special show trailer to Los Banos, California, arriving just in time for its debut with the West Coast shows. On the 3rd of May, 1967, the exhibit was opened to the public for the first time as a what-is-it type of show. Where did it come from? Curious spectators inquired. Well, it is claimed to have been found by some Chinese fishermen in the Bering Straits, was my stock reply. My cover story had been created in advance and worked very well, so I stuck to it for the next two years. As I continued along the fair circuit that year, I readily admitted to other showmen that this was a creation. All agreed it was a compelling attraction but the model contained too many imperfections to fool anyone with an expert knowledge of anatomy. Our tour continued until November 1967, 
when we closed at the Louisiana State Fair and returned to our farm home in Rolling Stone for the winter. By March 1968, I had convinced myself that it was safe to substitute the real specimen for the coming fair season. I cut off refrigeration to melt the ice from both specimens and made the switch using my farm tractor loader and an I-beam. I worked the creature into a position closely resembling the model by cutting the tendons in the arms and legs. I then started the difficult task of creating ice around the specimen. Well, this will be the greatest exhibit to hit the fair circuit, I said after the job was completed. Even a trained scientist would be shocked to see this. The 1968 season was one of the most remarkable in our history. Physicians, professors, and college students came from everywhere to see the exhibit. All pondered on the possibilities of a true missing link. At the Oklahoma State Fair, one prominent surgeon visited the exhibit nine separate occasions. Each time, he brought a different colleague. Even a high official of the state of Oklahoma tactfully suggested that we were not promoting our exhibit fully by showing it on the fair circuit. At the Kansas State Fair, the county pathologist was so intrigued that he sent many of his associates to see the creature. Apparently, the exhibit was brought to the attention of Ivan Sanderson and Bernard Huvelmans by one of their colleagues. They called and asked permission to examine the creature. This was a grave mistake on my part. Both men were visibly impressed, but made no mention of releasing a scientific report. However, Dr. Huvelmans published an article on the Homo pongids, the ape-man, in a February 1969 bulletin of the Royal Institute of Natural Science of Belgium. The long search for the rumored live ape-man or missing link has at last been successful, he reported. Ivan Sanderson published an article in the May 1969 issue of Argosy magazine. Let me say simply, he wrote, that one look was actually enough to convince us that this was, from our point of view at least, the genuine article. This was no phony Chinese trick or artwork. If nothing else confirmed this, the appalling stench of rotting flesh exuding from a point in the insulation of the coffin certainly did. My problem started again with the publication of Huvelman's article. It seemed as if every newspaper, radio station, magazine, and television station in the world wanted to verify the existence of the creature. Calls poured in each day from London, Tokyo, Berlin, Rome, and scores of American cities. The Smithsonian Institution requested permission to inspect the carcass. This request was promptly refused. Dozens of scientists asked permission to remove a core sample of the creature. Biologists wanted hair and blood samples. Huvelmans had stated in his article that it appeared that the creature had been shot. Newspapers began to speculate on the possibility that law enforcement authorities should investigate the manner in which I obtained the creature. If the body is that of a human being... There is the question of who shot him and whether any crime was committed, an article in the Detroit News reported. With these events swarming into my life, I became a regular visitor to my attorney's office. His advice was clear-cut and direct. 
Frank, you had better substitute the model for the real specimen and then take off for a long vacation. This sounded like good advice, so I made arrangements to make the transfer in a cold storage warehouse. The original specimen was put into a refrigerated van and sped to a hiding place away from the Midwest. Refreezing the model took several days, and it was during this period that newspapers carried accounts of both me and the creature vanishing. During the past few months, I have been pressed for the conditions or circumstances under which I would consider giving the specimen up for scientific evaluation. Two conditions must be met before I would even consider such an action. One, a statement of complete amnesty for any possible violation of federal laws. Two, a statement of complete amnesty for any possible violation of state and local laws where the specimen was transported or exhibited during the 1968 fair season. There will surely be skeptics that will brand this story a complete fabrication. Possibly it is. I am not under oath, and should the situation dictate, I will deny every word of it. But then no one can be completely certain unless my conditions of amnesty are met. In the meantime, I will continue to exhibit a hairy specimen that I have publicly acknowledged to be a fabricated illusion, and leave the final judgment to the viewers. If one should detect a rotting odor coming from the corner of the coffin, it is only your imagination. A new seal has been placed under the glass, and the coffin is airtight. This story was published in Saga Magazine, July 1970. And the story is written by Frank Hansen. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to this episode of Creek Devil. If you or anyone you know has had an encounter with these creatures, please contact us at williamjevning at yahoo.com. That's William, J-E-V-N-I-N-G, at yahoo.com. All communication is confidential. Join us for another program next week. And until then, keep your eyes open out there. <laughs> <laughs>